0: Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent here at Renegade Realty Group with Keller Williams. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly. This group's about networking and doing deals. It's so thank you, Grandma's rea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, been gay and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about, those dark, sad little fucking dingy rooms. RDI is also this podcast where we continue the real estate conversation. If you're ever interested in attending any of the local meetups, we have two a month now with the exception of July. Go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash renegadedetroitinvestors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. All right. Legal disclaimer. Don't blame me, man. This is the way the world is, all right? No way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Grow up. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue us. All right. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investor Show quote where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and your week. And this week, we went with something from Ryan Holiday out of Ego is the Enemy. Greatness comes from humble beginnings. It comes from grunt work. It means you're the least important person in the room until you change that with results. Ryan Holiday. Let me introduce you to my guest. It's a good friend, known him for a long time, Mr. Reed Starkey. Said he said he's never going to do this podcast, but we're going to muddle our way through. Reed has been a full-time real estate investor since 2015 with over 50 investment deals under his belt. He holds a license as a builder and also has an active license as a real estate agent. Reed's career started in the automotive aftermarket with over 15 years of leadership as a high achiever in multiple big box stores such as CarQuest Auto Parts, as a prestigious President's Award winner and O'Reilly Auto Parts Managing Store of the Year. Reed is highly accomplished and skilled in managing projects and people as well as delivering exceptional service and results. Reed's passion for combining his leadership skills and interest in real estate investments has led him to host the Starkey Multifamily Podcast, as well as hosting events related to the industry, such as the Starkey Multifamily Meetup. And he's also the co-host of the Dirty House Buyers Meetup. His partner on that was Garrett. He's been on this podcast before. Go back and listen to that one, too. And as a leader of his household, Reed has been married for eight years with two boys to help fuel his passion to invest in the future of other families and contribute to the success of the community. So he has his own meetup, two meetups, right? So go to meetup.com forward slash dirty house buyers or go to meetup.com forward slash shit. What is that one, Reed? Starkey Uh, family. Starkey multifamily. Starkey multifamily. For some reason, it didn't update in here. You can also go to propellerpropertymanagement.com, read at propellerpropertymanagement.com, or you can hit him up at read at multi family connections. Welcome to the podcast, sir. How you doing? Thank you for having me. How do we first meet? Do you remember?
1: Yeah, at a coffee shop meetup. There we, we hosted, go. Yeah. That
0: was back in the day. That was back in Detroit, right? That was in 2014, 15? It would have
1: to have after 15. So at least 15 or 16.
0: 15, 16. Uh, we seem like we've known each other longer than that, but you've done a lot in a short period of time. What made you get into real estate? You sound like you had a damn good thing going, right? Fucking CarQuest loves you. O'Reilly loves you. You're living the corporate dream, right? I mean, that seems like a lot of work to be the best at something. But I understand wanting to be the best at whatever you do, right? But there had to be something, right? What what happened there?
1: Uh, well, it's kind of an interesting story. So, um, you know, you said trying to be the best. So, in in auto parts, it wasn't really necessarily very hard to be the best. So you kind of touched on that. It was low bar. Welcome to being a,
0: you could do that as a real estate agent too. Extremely low bar.
1: Yeah. So, you know, being the best is not as exciting as you might think. You know, I, I didn't find a lot of a joy being around people that are blowing my mind and the things that they do. And the harder I work, I still can't keep up with them. So that's, that's where I like to be. But it started when my wife was pregnant with our first son. Uh, so she was, you know, as we went through the pregnancy. Uh, prior to that I guess I had worked many hours uh, you know working 60 70 80 hours a week and always told myself if I had things to do I could get away and then we started doing the appointments for the you know the the doctor appointments for the baby it uh, turned out that I was not as uh, easy to get away from the work as I thought so um, the month that he was born I put in my two-week notice I was gone and out of there pretty quick as soon as that happened so I had bought our uh, first official flip uh in like a month before I quit. And then it, we listed it like when I quit and then hoped that it sold. And, and that was where I started. So it was
0: a little crazy, but you just jumped right off then right into the deep end, right? Yeah. Well, so did they lie to you or like your employees weren't reliable enough that you could take time off to like go to your, you know, take care of your kids, go, you know, all that kind of stuff. Is it kind of like a lie or just a reality? Like they're not lying. There's just nobody else to do it. And I'm stuck doing
1: it. It's a hundred percent my fault. So I am not the type of person that can do a job good enough. It's just not, I I don't have it in me to do it. And uh, so when I left Carquest and I I interviewed for O'Reilly, my wife, then fiance, you know, asked me why I was going back to auto parts where, you know, where I just worked too hard. And I said, well, this will be different. I won't have ownership in it where, you know, CarQuest, I had ownership in it. And I said, I'm just going to go to work, do what my boss says. And that's it. It's just, this is going to be a job, um, which my wife is a little smarter than I am. turns out that's not how I work. So it's, you know, I don't know why it is. It's not like I get paid more to do better. I mean, he makes commission, but it's not, you know, the the dollar per hour doesn't do the math. Right. But it's just uh it's just the way I'm wired, so I realized that I wasn't able to say, Hey, let's run it a little short on staff so I can go do something important for me. You know my priorities were definitely not
0: straight, but it's just uh difficult for me to do well, it depends if some if I was hiring you, I think it was fucking awesome, right, but it's if it's ruining your family life, not so awesome, not so awesome for you. I understand like I am that way too, like if I don't care about necessarily, it's I'm highly competitive and I don't care necessarily about beating everybody, but I want to do better every single time. And it's almost like a compulsion. And it didn't matter if I was mowing a lawn or frying donuts at Safeway or baking bread or whatever it is. I always wanted to be a little bit better each time, no matter what I'm doing. Even as a dishwasher, I tried to wash dishes faster. Like it was just always some sort of challenge, uh, could be the bar jobs are just so boring. You had to have something to entertain yourself too, but I kind of get that. It's not about the money, right? Some people think, Oh, you're not getting paid enough to do that. It's like, I'm not, I'm not doing this part for money. I want to be, I want to be better at it. How'd you talk your wife into quitting the job though? Right. Was she just so frustrated with you working all the time that she's like, whatever, we'll just jump off in the deep end and just go for it. Or is this like a natural thing that built up? Did you plan Did you set money aside?
1: Well, so I could I could go back to a little bit of a story. So I, I don't tell a lot about this, but so my first flip that I talk about on that one there is not my real first flip. So it's like this career's first flip. So when I was working at CarQuest, I did another flip in uh like Howell, Michigan area.
0: There you go. I know the story. We're finally getting there.
1: <clears throat> yeah, so it's uh you know, it's not one I'm proud of, but I I guess I've done enough work now that I don't have to worry about about that. But the um so there was no meetups back then. This was before there was all kinds of renegades. And, you know, we just talked about there's one every day of the week. Um, so I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, think it back, some of the things were really dumb. You know, I didn't think that holding costs mattered. And we, you know, held it for six months. Uh, I partnered with a friend who did the work and ended up moving into the house, which was a total disaster. Oh. You know, and, and uh <clears throat> you know, so we had just a whole bunch of things fall. This we're just... Looking back, are just silly things that didn't make any sense, and uh, so it ended up being like a forty thousand dollars loss on that deal. Totally disaster. And again, part of the disaster was I was working eighty hours a week, and then trying to go
0: back and figure out how to do this flip.
1: And people do it, and more power to them. But that's a lot of work. That's a
0: that's a lot to do. I'm trying to imagine the stink eye from your wife at CarQuest after you shit canned forty grand, which. I know how hard you work to get that too. Right. So that's post-tax. Well, I was
1: single then. So I had, so money was easier to come by at a little point, bit but- easier.
0: Right. So so not only did you just quit your job with a flip you hadn't sold yet, you had actually failed miserably on a flip before in the history. So I think people just think this shit just happens. Right. Um, and to your point, I have a little I'm trying to get this quote out there. If you're not fucking shit up, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like there's always that that time where you don't know. And yes, you should be careful and you should take more time, but I've always been a believer that it's better to start than to wait. But to your point, if you start too soon and you're not ready, but I kind of look at that like your PhD, right? You got a little PhD in what not to do. So here you are, you quit. You go from Car CarQuest and you go to O'Reilly and then you quit O'Reilly and you've already failed on a flip, but now you have a flip on the market, but it hasn't sold and you've quit your job. Yeah. Yeah, how was that with the wifey?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, so that's what I was trying to get to. Is, you know, I look back and that's one of the biggest uh, supporting moments, you know, of a, a a marriage. And I don't think a relationship... Or I don't think real estate would work if your partner is not supportive in some capacity. But you know, I told her I wanted to do this, you know, at first I told her I wanted to buy one. she goes, Well, what makes you think this one's gonna be any different? That's a good question, right? And I said, Well, I think I learned everything you can do wrong the first time.
0: I'll just, <laughs> just get it all out of the way. Different.
1: <laughs> and uh and she never questioned it again. And and uh so looking back on that, I was like, Man, I don't know that I would have the same reverse faith in somebody. To say, well, you you screwed this up the first time, but let's not only do it again and then quit your job. And then she also went down to like two days a week at that time. So we really like threw it all out there. But we had some good things. I mean, so CarQuest and O'Reilly had really good stock option available that uh, you know, we were able to pay down our house and our cars and zero debt. So we had no school debt or anything and enough money to manage to make it for a while with, you know, if we just totally screwed it up. So you know, I, it's not that courageous of a story when you look at it that way, but
0: no, it makes you smarter. Actually, I think you had, you had a backdrop, you had a little bit of money you could play with yet. You, you had other things you could do and other ways out that you just in case, right. You weren't just burning everything. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Well, and I look at it too. You know, I, I believe that there is an abundance of everything in this planet. You know, if, if we need to go get a job, I could, well, at then, that time, I could pr- very easily go do it. I don't know that I'm very hireable now, but <laughs> at that time, I, I knew that I could very easily go back to any place and get a job, and, and she's got a, a degree in occupational therapy, so, you know, we're, we're covered with there, but. So
0: yeah, that goes back to our quote, right? Don't be don't be so proud to go take some shit job if you just have to pay some bills or to get through or to manage something. So, all right, so you put this flip on the market. How long did it take the second flip? How long did it take to sell?
1: The second flip or the first? Yeah. Or you're talking about the because you, you screwed up your first one. Yeah, yeah, So
0: now you're doing your second one, but your first one after your job quit. So that one was a, a spectacular. Probably it's actually.
1: I was to make sure, but I think that's my most successful one yet. So it was um, we. I ended up doing the the estimate of repairs for twenty five thousand on a foundation that was messed up, and uh, after buying it, found out I could fix it a different way for twenty five hundred. So significantly bumped my uh, profit up, and I was extra conservative because it was my first. Well, you know, this one had a lot riding on it, so uh, we ended up making like fifty grand on that one, and it sold within
0: a couple hours of putting it on the market. So man, you make a good point. Got to wait for the right deal too, right? How long did you guys wait before you found that second flip? How many houses did you look at? Like how long did it actually take you put that one together?
1: I don't know, but I, I don't think I was looking for too long. I mean, I, I would say maybe a, a couple of weeks, but this was back 2015. So there, Way more there was a lot of more properties yeah. right now. I mean, it, I can't find them that quickly now
0: knowing what I'm looking for. So it's, it's definitely a different market. Mm. Well, how did it go from there? You're now out on your own. You're doing your own thing. You got your first flip under your belt. What, what does your day look like and how do you go about? Cause a lot of people want to do this, right? So that's why I'm kind of trying to line out. Like this is, po- this is a possible thing. It is. I feel like a lot of people, especially, last three or four years, like this is something that's handed down from someone or it's like given to something, someone, or you like walk along the side of the road and you stumble across it. And Oh, by the way, I'm a real estate investor and I'm flipping houses and I have rentals now. And it, like, that's not actually true. Everybody I know for the most part, there's like one or two that came from money, but everybody I know who did it came from absolutely nothing. And you're some car parts guy, right? And mm-hmm. I think people think, like, they have these jobs that they're just not in a position where they can't do it, right? So you you saved up your money. You biffed. It's funny that your your first one was the worst one and your second one was the best one. Yeah. I like the dichotomy of that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll just do everything the opposite way. But that's why I'm trying to ask is get more details about that because I think a lot of people are scared. And if they knew kind of how you did it or how other people do it, they might be more inclined to try. So what'd your life look like after that, uh, first flip? Do you go down to Mexico, blow all your money or you? <laughs> no. So I'm, I am probably
1: the most conservative person you'll ever meet. You know, so I, I mean, I don't usually do that kind of stuff, but, um, you know, we, we do take our vacations and stuff when it's needed, but, um, so I started doing, you know, flips like one or two at a time, which was all that I could afford with the cash that I had. Uh, And, and, you know, took me a while to build that leap of borrowing money, which is, yeah. So you're
0: self funding your first couple, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's hard. That's way harder. Yeah.
1: Well, and it doesn't teach you as much either because you can take nine months to flip something. There's no holding costs when it's sitting in a bank, making zero or sitting in a house, making appreciation, you know, so it's really no, there's no pressure there when you start paying 15 or 18% interest and then, then you start understanding the pressure of flipping quickly. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was an adjustment period. I mean, I went from working all the time to, you know, when you're doing one or two flips, there's not really a lot to do. I'm not doing any of the work. So I'm like driving by once every other day Then I'm sitting around and then, you know, it kind of got a little bit shaky there where there was, was nothing to do. And, Uh, You know, I had the kids to raise, so I guess there was stuff to do. But, you know, I was raising them, but Liz was staying home. So um, it wasn't until I actually talked to you and and we were talking about a deal where I had the option of paying for it or borrowing money. I remember this. And uh, and I I think uh, I won't say his name. I don't know if he wants it out there. But so we borrowed money from this guy who I met at your meetup. And uh, and then almost immediately I found another deal and ended up buying that one. So then, then I was like, wow, this works really good. Now I've got multiple streams or multiple flips going on and something to keep me busy to do. Uh, and then you know, that was kind of the big the big aha moment is, yeah, I might make less money on each flip, but if I can run 10 at a time, yes. now, now that makes a huge difference of the money that goes in my pocket.
0: What I like about having a private lender or hard money lender or somebody else investing in the deal too, if it. If you go to somebody good, it's also a second set of eyes underwriting your deal as well. And I think people underestimate the value of that. It's like a lot of people go to Metro Detroit Real Estate Investors Group and they post, hey, looking for a private lender, best rates or whatever. And I just think that's the absolute wrong approach, right? You're treating these lenders like they're just – it's like you're going to the grocery store and getting a gallon of milk and you're assuming that – all milk is, is the same and all you're getting is the milk. The, the loan is just one part of what you're getting, especially if you're borrowing money from somebody, at least I have, people who've done more, smarter than me, have more money, right? It's good to have somebody else, uh, look, look over it too. I never thought about the way you did because I never put all my money in one deal. I always leveraged. Right from the get go, mm-hmm. right? We started with credit cards, pulled off uh, money off credit cards to buy houses. But you're right. There was no sense of urgency necessarily because it, all your money, you're not running 15, 18%. You're not having a conversation once or twice a month with your private lender. So there's no real sense of urgency in the same way when that alligator is into your profit, right? Yeah. Or like, Hey, is it sold yet or where you're at? Oh, we're two weeks behind and the lender's like, yeah. Okay, two weeks. But well, what are we going to do about that? There's just none of that conversation, right? It's also, it's almost like an accountability partner too when you when you get a lender. So that, that was a that was an excellent point you made. How were you finding your deals?
1: So I've got probably most of my deals, and people will probably not believe this, but most of them I've got off MLS. You know, I mean, so there's a few tactics that used to work. They're starting to not work anymore, but you know, is, is you got the cash. So you say, I'm not, there's nobody else has to prove this, but me, you put non-refundable EMD down earnest money deposit. And, uh, you know, once I got my license, that was the key is I could go out and have an offer within an hour, the property was listed.
0: So So nobody else has
1: seen the house. Nobody else is making offers. And you got one that expires in six hours so that nobody else is going to have a chance to look at it. And I think that works typically pretty good. Although a broker just told me the other day, he goes, that doesn't mean anything. Everybody's got cash. So <laughs> I, uh, it's a definitely, the, the market's definitely changing, but it's going to go back around the other way.
0: I like your time limit. I have been defeated as a real estate agent one time in a negotiation. And I'm not going to mention this agent's name. I would love to recruit this agent by the way. And what this agent did is exactly what you're talking about. It was a flip property. It was amazing. And they went out, looked at it right away, submitted their offer, and they put a four-hour time limit on it. It was an above ask offer. They waived inspection, and Big EMD with a four-hour time limit. And I, I was pretty sure I could get more. Yep. But this agent also stuck to their time limit. Most agents, you're like, oh, the time limit. Like I just had, I just put it in there. They'll just tell you it's not part of the negotiation. So now you just lost all the urgency. Of the deal. So I like how you put that in there because my sellers did what you expect. I called the lender. They were super qualified. And I go, I think I can get more. And they're like, yeah, but I hate to lose this one. Mm -hmm. Right. Bam. Off the market. Done deal. So yeah, you create a sense of urgency with your cash offer by putting a really short time limit on it. I bet that did work quite a bit of times for you.
1: I've, I've actually had investors call me on my cell phone, which I have no idea how they got my number yelling at me. Like, how did you get that under contract? I go, I don't know. I just made an offer the same way you would. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, I had one guy and He's like, well, how many deals have you done? I go, I don't know what that has anything to do with. He's like, I've done
0: hundreds. And I'm like, okay. Well, yeah, you didn't do this one. So you got time to call and yell at me. You got time to make more offers. Well, the other thing you did was you acted fast. Mm -hmm. Speed is the key from the time it went on the market to the time they got to offer. Like you're, you're, that's psychologically for the seller. That's like a go, no go situation. Like I've only been on the market. I got a cash offer, a big EMD that what, what, non refundable, mm-hmm. uh, four, six hour time limit. Like you created, that's a lot of pressure right there. Especially, let's face it, a lot of these agents are weak too. Mm-hmm. And they just want to get the sale. They're not interested in the highest price. I love, I love how you did that. I love you got them off the MLS too. Cause a lot of people will tell you, well, it certainly is harder to get them off the MLS now. They're still there. Jason had two in the last three weeks, two deals off the MLS for our clients. You gotta look, of course, right? Yeah. And then you gotta move with some speed. So I like that. You're you're quick and you create a sense of urgency to get your offer looked at in a different way. Well, did we'll you figure that out on your own or did somebody teach you that? I'm sure somebody I'm sure I got that from somebody. But, you know,
1: once you've done a few rehabs, you don't have to do a ton before you start realizing that a kitchen costs the same, a bathroom costs the same, painting and flooring you're going to do on everything. So the renovation costs almost start to be the same on anything you do, especially if you're doing like a 1,300 square foot bungalow is going to be the same, no matter if it's in Redford or, you know, Lincoln Park, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. So you start looking at the pictures and you look for like real big anomalies or, you start asking them if there's foundation problems and beyond that it's the same thing so you know what your budget's gonna be and you throw offers out there and then when you get one that somebody doesn't think you're crazy then you then you know you got something but
0: well I also like how in your second deal you did uh you tackled a foundation problem too because a lot of profit is in work that other people they don't necessarily want to do or it's just right off the list right like how many times have you heard? No basement problems, no fire damage, no molt, right? So if you were a savage person and you didn't mind tackling those things, most investors, I'm going to say like 97% of investors, they just brush those off the table. They're not even considered. Nope, not going to even look at it. Mm -hmm. So you're also looking at, things and doing things that other people would be like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. It's just too risky. And you're like, mm, I think I could do that. Put in a wide margin. And then it wasn't even as bad as you thought. So, well, in, in my experience, the, the bigger risk
1: ticket like the big ticket items, like a foundation are the lowest risk for me because I can go get a much higher reputation company to do a foundation and come in and say, look, this is going to be 20 grand. And when I'm done, it's 20 grand. But if you've done a lot of rehabs, which I know you have, a 20 grand is usually 30 grand. Yes. You know, and you gotta fight them to keep it down that low. So it's you know, there's always something on the little stuff that comes up, but those big ticket items are pretty easy to estimate. You know, a roof is a roof. It's gonna be what it is. You know, foundations are usually what they are, and there's not stuff that comes up beyond that. So for me, those things that scare a lot of people off are my favorite to tackle but for
0: that reason. Yeah, the money the money's in the problem, right? Mm-hmm. So you're tackling problems other people didn't want to tackle. You're moving with speed. You put a timeline on your your offer. You had a non-refundable earnest money deposit. So that that was and you're pulling them off the MLS. That's how you got most of your deals, correct?
1: Yeah, and then I mean a lot of them come from, you know, networking. So your meetup has given me a few you know, right from there. But it's the same thing, it's moving quick. So when they say, hey, I got this deal, I go sit with them and say, I want to see it tonight. Yeah, Let's go look at it. And when they say no, I say, well, what is the first slot you have available to look at it? And then again, there's usually an investor who's looking at it afterwards, but I've already locked it up. And they're like, I didn't even get to look at it. I'm like, oh, I'm not giving it. you
0: the opportunity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want, you know, I mean, I know I want what I want and I, I go after and get it. So
0: yeah, you have a high sense of urgency to, to get the deal under contract. And I think that is, I think actually that would have made you a great wholesaler too. If you ever decide to go like really hard in that direction, cause that's part of what it's kind of like hunting is a high sense of urgency every single day where being first really, really matters 80% of the time. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the correct way. So you just smothered them the second you got them. Like, no, let's. Steve was like that a little bit too. He'd go on these appointments and we wouldn't leave for an hour and a half sometimes. Like <laughs> I'm right here. Why don't we just do this? No, I know you wouldn't accept that. And they sign, you know, and somebody else come behind you. I'm like too late. Sorry. I can't tell you how many times that's how I got faster where you lose the deal because you didn't get there fast enough. Oh, oh that is the worst. And you realize it's your fault too. Mm-hmm. You're like,
1: Oh, <laughs> well, Steve was
0: always good at.
1: So the part that I struggled with, you know, cause we, We bought one deal from Steve and uh and I was like, Man, how did you buy that at that price? Like, how did you do that? So what he has an ability to do is to negotiate starting low. My negotiating style is a lot more like Josh Sterling's where I do the math and if I want to pay sixty thousand, that's what I'm gonna pay for it. I don't offer forty, I don't play the games. I just say, look, it's sixty grand, that's what I'm paying. You take it or leave it, let's be done with it. Uh, I don't know if that's successful or not, or if there's, that's a good strategy or not,
0: but Hey, 50 houses later appears to be working, right? Yeah.
1: Yes. But, but Steve, I mean, you're looking at, you know, like I said, that one that we bought from them, we're like, how in the world did you get them to buy it at that price? Like, that's just absurd.
0: That was a saline deal, right? Yeah. It was. Yeah, yeah. That was a damn good deal. Yeah. Except for that fucking swimming pool. Right try to yeah, yeah yeah i hate swimming pools too yeah, pools are terrible <laughs> they are <laughs> fuck pools know. if you got a pool fill it in <laughs> just make that part of the the budget to to snuff it out and make it go away or it's got to be perfect there's like no in between in the pool world and didn't it take you like four months to find somebody who could even fix the damn pool or yeah because
1: everybody the pool companies are slammed i told gareth we, we should start a pool company we might as well. I mean, that's, you know, you call every one of them, they're like, no, we don't even have time to look at it. That's you know, hilarious. They, they don't even, you, you can't even get on the list. You wouldn't think that year. would be a problem. <laughs> you, you wouldn't think so. No. But, but all these people are booking it a year ahead of time. Yeah. So they're knowing that they want, you know, the maintenance next year for 2021. So they've already got it booked, and these companies don't even answer their phone. Several of them just had an answering machine that said, look, if you're not already a customer, hang up because we're not dealing with you.
0: That is hilarious. They actually, <laughs> and you're like, we may have made a mistake here.
1: Well, and I said, man, how can we have a, how can you have a business that literally on your answer machine says, if we haven't done business before, hang up. We're not interested in anybody new. We're booked. To me, I'm thinking, well, hire some more people. If you're that busy, get it going. But
0: that is interesting. Maybe. It's going to be Reed Starkey pull services.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I've got enough on my plate. Yeah. yeah,
0: you got enough on your plate. So, all right. So you, you kind of get started full-time 2015, pulling deals off the MLS, moving fast, doing fix and flips, right? Um, Did you start picking up any rentals or doing anything like that? Or were you just focused on fix and flips?
1: So, yeah, mostly fix and flips. I, I do have some rentals, but they were all accidental rentals. So it uh, – I know you and I had conversations and you were trying to talk me into it.
0: Just like accidentally having a kid. It does seem like it's kind of hard to accidentally do, but please tell me.
1: <laughs> well, so when, when you buy quickly, sometimes you don't do a lot of research on the property. Sometimes they come with tenants. My first one actually was just such an amazing deal that by the time I got it done, I was like, man, I could make 15 grand or have $300 a month in my pocket every month and have all my money paid back. So it was like, yeah, why not? We'll do it. So that was kind of the first one. That was in East Point. And then some of them I bought, not reading carefully enough that they had tenants in it. I was like, well, <laughs> all right, well I guess, I guess this one has a tenant. Hey honey, we're landlords. But, but then I started liking it and I started saying, well, I'll start doing this. And then I kind of ran into a money problem because I didn't have a job. So getting refinanced was hard. So I I assumed I'd be able to refinance it and I bought a bunch and then I ran out of money and I couldn't refinance them. So I ended up having to sell some. And then, um, you know, it was, that's how I got kind of into the apartment direction because I thought, okay, well, I think I had a total of six at the time. It was a one year anniversary from that first accidental one. And I thought six properties in one year, that's not going to get it. I mean, I could, I could do six a year for the rest of my life and I don't think that would make me wealthy by any means. So you know, I was kind of feeling like a little bit down on myself, and remember driving home on beginning of September, and I remember looking at an apartment building and thought, "That's it. I just need to buy a hundred at a time." So that's uh, So I really haven't flipped many properties since I made that decision. I think probably maybe three or four, but pretty much moved out of that space and uh, just focused on the multifamily since then.
0: Well I'm gonna to get to the multifamily, but we're gonna we're gonna stick on this because I think you do. I got some sp- specific nitty gritty questions because you are pretty good at project management and all that stuff. like what kind of software and what were what were your, like your basic procedures for how you manage? Because I know how hard it is to flip one house and your problems get worse the more houses you flip. It seems contrary. like some things get very easy. Like you pointed out, a bungalow is a bungalow, a ranch is a ranch, a colonial is a colonial, right? And then Mm -hmm. you've done a few. The numbers are, are very similar. So that part gets easier. But your labor problems, it seems like the more rehabs you have, your labor problems, it's not a linear problem. It's an exponential problem with the more rehabs. So that's some heroic shit with 50 fix and flips and rehabs how did you actually manage it? Did you use software? How did you track it? How did you keep people on time? How did you hold your contractors accountable? You get the idea where I'm going with this. Yeah. So, um,
1: so I stole a lot of systems from Josh Sterling, as we mentioned earlier. Um, I can't say stole, he gave them to me, but of his own free will and volition. so, but yeah, I mean, he, he kind of has everything as a system. So when you're doing uh, a flip, in my mind, I don't see how people are picking out tile for every house or going to Home Depot or Lowe's and picking out a different color for every house and whatever. So what we just had is a material list. So we had uh, you know, a, a certain tile that we used in the kitchen and the bathroom, and we had a certain backsplash tile, and it didn't matter what house it was. It got the same stuff. So there was no mental preparation there. So we would just go and measure the house and say, okay, we need – you know, and I had a, a little formula – Uh, that that we used and I I don't use this software anymore but I just had notes in there that had uh, you know for how many square feet you know if we're doing tile we need to order the backer board the screws you know the the tile the mortar and all that stuff and it was just a mathematical equation and then we had Lowe's would ship it all to the house and we'd have a big pallet but we'd save like 15% on it I think like 11 to 12% uh, by buying it all at once so we not only saved money on it we didn't have to pay somebody to go drive back and forth to Lowe's and Home Depot all the time.
0: Do you hear that? That's not something you have to do. You could just order it all at once and maybe make a few trips back. That's something you hear all the time. Like, oh, yeah, I've been to Home Depot every day for the last six months. You know, it's not mandatory.
1: Yeah. And if, if you're paying people by the hour, that really makes a big difference. So when you start looking at, you cannot go to Home Depot or Lowe's for less than an hour. I don't care who you are. You know, if you're just going to for screws and you drive 15 minutes there and you got to drive walk all the way to the aisle, grab your screws, and walk all the way back and cash out, and then drive back to the job site, you got an hour, and you're probably going to stop and get coffee. I mean, it, it just happens. So if you're paying them by the hour, you are absolutely losing money. You know that what what is it? It's been a while since I ordered them, but that eighty dollar delivery fee or whatever it is, or yeah. it it's not it doesn't matter because you're going to pay that in a minute. But even if you have contractors that you're just paying a flat fee, they're still leaving. They're less effective, and then you got whatever your holding costs are, and you know, so they can usually appreciate that. So we tried to order every time. So we made a list. You know, if we're ever short on something, we added that in. So like if we didn't order enough mortar for tile, we said, okay, next time we need an extra bag. So we just changed the mathematical formula. So we had a lot of leftovers and a lot of extra stuff, which we tried to bring to the next job, but. That was a little trickier than it sounds, but but I think just having everything there so that the contractor can move from boom, boom, boom is is a big a big deal.
0: I think a lot of people would ask though, how do you handle theft? Right? Because by having all the stuff there, uh, the potential for theft is obviously way higher. How did you handle that, or was that just never a problem for you? Knock on wood, it was
1: not a problem. Uh, so I mean, I don't go into like Inkster, eCourse, Detroit. No offense to those who are, but some the neighborhoods that I'm in generally have neighbors that are owners that, you know, will will call you. And I always made sure I went to the neighbors and gave them my card and said, Hey, call me if there's any problems, don't call the city, call me, <laughs> I will come fix it. So I think that was a, probably a big part of
0: it. I like that little preventative. All right. How else did you track it and manage it? Like what was the – did you just use a spreadsheet for that? Was that what Josh used, like a little spreadsheet or was it like a software program so for Josh this? used a spreadsheet and I did most of it on
1: that. We tried using uh, some software. It was like $300 a month. I remember that. And that worked really good when we, were, when we were working volume because, like I said, I could just go in and type, okay, I got, you know, 30 outlets, you know, 10 light switches, you know, this many – uh, light fixtures and this is a square foot of the bathroom and kitchen. And it would just say, here's what you need to order. And I would hit send. It would email it to my guy at Lowe's. And then he'd say, when do you want it delivered? And then it would be there in two or three days and we'd get started. Hmm. So I, I, if, if I think of it while we're talking, I'll that's shoot okay. it out there, but, but I wouldn't recommend that for most people. You could do it in
0: a spreadsheet. Yeah. $300 a month is significant, especially when you only got one or two going on, right? That's yeah. a little bit, uh, it's a little bit, to to carry. But um, I like that you had – you went to somebody else who had a better system and then you just copied the system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as humans, we all feel compelled to be special and to rethink things, right? But especially in this modern age of the internet where you can meet people and you can go to meetups and you can buy books. And yeah, there's the guru courses too. But there's still like between podcasts and everything else – there's a lot of stuff you can borrow from other people and guaranteed the successful ones borrowed it from other people as well. Like you don't have to be a genius in this business. You just got to find somebody who's done way more than you and just kind of copy, copy what they did. Did you hire like general contractors? Did you act as your own general contractor since you have your building license? Like how did you kind of manage your labor?
1: I've done both. Uh, we've had much more success with the general contractors. So, uh, my model is to not work on the properties. In fact, if you remember, I sold my truck for the specific reason of not doing work because I always could get stuck thinking, oh, this will be a 10 minute job and those don't exist. So then I'd be all upset. I'm in the middle of this job that I swore wouldn't be very hard. And, and, you know, <laughs> hours later I'm cussing and swearing and angry as can be. So, um, so we did a lot of general contractors which the general contractors to do the whole job, I've never had good luck with because then they just screw it up. And then you got the whole job is messed up. We've had the best luck with hiring an electrician, you know, a carpenter, you know, a handyman, kind of all the little pieces a little bit out so that if somebody works you over, leaves the job and you're out a thousand bucks or, you know, that's like the worst that they can do, but everybody else is still working. Um, So the, we tried a little bit on having the like hiring actual employees and having them work, which also didn't work very well. So my style, there's some people that are very good on it, and I see them, you know, in your groups in the Facebook group. Uh, but I think they're more involved with being there every day. Yes. So we we struggled on on a property uh, Garrett and I did in uh, Clinton Township.
0: And that's a ways away too from you guys. Well, as that's, well.
1: that's part of the problem because it's an one. hour, yeah. hour and
0: 10 minutes for me. And I think
1: equal distance for Garrett.
0: Yeah. Cause he lives way downriver too. Like not too far, he's but he's in Ann Arbor. Yeah. He's in Ann Arbor. You're downriver. It's like, it's far enough. I always say downriver because once you're down there, it's just all downriver to me, but it's actually further than downriver. But that's a little bit of a drive. So
1: yeah. So we, uh, I mean, we, we kept going to the house and we would say, you know, it looks the same as it did three days ago, or four days ago, or whatever. It, I don't see any change. Oh, we have these difficulties here, but meanwhile, we're dropping like three grand a week, you know, on, on these, on paying these people. And you know, when you pay three grand a week and you go there for three, four, five weeks and nothing's happening, it starts eating into your profits very quickly. So, I think the math works out good if you sit down and look at the math of you know what you pay a guy to lay tile in your bathroom. You know, maybe seven hundred bucks in labor, and then you got, you know, paying somebody twenty bucks an hour. Clearly, paying them hourly is going to be cheaper. But for whatever reason, if you're not there, they don't magically it doesn't
0: happen. Yeah. (laughs) So,
1: yeah, if you're going to go the if you're going to go the hiring employees by the hour, I think you need to be there at least a lot more consistently than we were
0: or have enough volume. You can hire a supervisor to do your job for you. I think that's where Carson McGuire is trying to get where he can get himself out. Cause he has some on staff too. And I know, um Tom Tom Wooderson has some on staff too, but they also have some competent people that they do enough volume that they could they don't have to physically be there all the time, although they still have to check in too. I like talking about this because everybody has a slightly different way of doing it too. And I think some people get trapped in, they're like there's one way or the other way. They're like, eh, actually there's a lot of different ways to do it. That's why I'm super curious how like you managed it and
1: Yeah, Carson is actually one of the people I was thinking about who's there a lot more often. And he's, that guy's going to be big. He's pretty young too. Oh, he's very young. Yeah. So,
0: he's been on the podcast too, by the way. Go back and look it up. Carson McGuire. He's been on there. Savage, savage bastard right there. And he keeps himself super tight.
1: Yeah, he's good. Very
0: small area. So he is an after travel area, which makes it a lot easier to go to him too. You're an hour or a half away and you got to go visit. You're like, oh no, that's three hours. If you spend no time there, you know, that's to your point. That eats a big chunk of your day up.
1: Yeah. If I, if I went back and did it again, probably the one thing I'd do is focus on a small area. Um, cause that would save so much time, not only in driving, but getting to know the cities. So every time you do a new city, you're like, Oh, you guys do it differently than everybody else. Or, you know, but if you go to the same city and you do the same things, you know what their irritations are. So every city, you always hear somebody, why do you invest there? That's terrible. They're, you know, they're horrible to work with, but once you've done enough with them, you know exactly who to talk to. You know what they want. So you know, like Lincoln Park is where we're doing a lot of work now is we know that they're a big stickler on the driveways. If there's a little hairline crack, you're going to put a new driveway in it. Yep. But it doesn't matter. It's not a problem if you know that's what you're getting into. So you pay accordingly. So it's the seller that, su- that suffers, not you. And so, I mean, you just those little quirks you start to know. But if you're doing four flips and every one of them's in a different city. It's hard to keep track of that. And then, so just the driving around and then the nonsense of trying to learn all the different stuff and all the different nuances of the different neighborhoods and learning how to price them out. So when you're in a city, you know, if you're doing a lot in that city, you will know immediately. And Carson McGuire is a good example. You can give him an address and he'll tell you what it's worth. He'll yeah. tell you this history on that house because his area is so small. Well, I can't do that because I've been all over the place, so there's no way that I can do that. There's a couple cities I'm getting really good at, but, but because of my non-focused on an area, it's dwindled
0: my ability to know one specific area well. Well, there's pros and cons to it, right? If you expand your area, you get more opportunities, but then it costs you more in travel time, and then logistics are harder, right? And if you focus in on a narrow area, you have less opportunities, but you can smother every opportunity that comes up. Yeah. So that's another thing you can do. You can go big. You can go small. You can go in between, kind of depending how focused you are. Like Juan Ro- Ron Wallweaver doesn't care where he deals at. It could be in seven counties. He doesn't, he literally does not care where the deal is at. And then, then you got the polar opposite. Carson McGuire, sticking to like one city for the most part two two now he's kind of branching out, but that's only because he's fucking bought and sold <laughs> half of Hazel Park. Yeah. You know, there's just not that much left. He says he's not going to move out completely until he's done one on every street in Hazel Park. And there's still, uh, I think he says like six streets he hasn't done a deal on. And Hazel Park, which actually I think that'd be a cool Monopoly game for, or, or like a bingo game for investors. Like, okay, we could we could create a Hazel Park bingo game for Carson McGuire that he yeah. could fill out and only he could win like the
1: McDonald's uh, yeah. deal. That'd be cool. Yeah, I mean it's uh Ron Wallraven. I was talking about one of the, my first deals. I was looking at buying a neighbor to one of the houses I did, and I said, man, that'd be so cool to get two and like next door to each other. He goes, wait till you do the same one twice, <laughs> <laughs> which I have not done, but I would really like to someday to say I did the same house twice, but
0: I have wholesaled one house t- two times. So that was kind of cool, but that's it so far. Yeah. Only once out of 800 deals. I don't think it happens as often as we would like, but if you're like Ron been around for 35 yeah. years, it's way more likely to
1: happen. Yeah. So. I think it'd be kind of depressing though, to see like the transition of the beautiful Yearly house that again. You hand off. And then now it's this. You know, beat up house again, but
0: that's an excellent point. There is a, there does seem to be a fair amount of waste. Like when, when houses go bad or human situations go bad, the house takes the, the brunt yeah. of the problem. And it's crazy. Like I think all the time, like I wonder how many times these houses in Detroit have been rehabbed over the last 50 years. Think about a lot. I, that is inefficiency, is it not? That's mm-hmm. a place where money goes to die a lot of times. So it's like, huh, I wonder how many times, and you see it like, oh, this, this house has been flipped eight times in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. like, that's at least 20 paint jobs. You know what I'm saying? Something like that, right? Carpet. Like it's, it is a little depressing to think about your, your hard work and effort disappearing, but I don't know. Not much you can do about it either, right?
1: No. I mean, in reality that their loss is one of our, Wins, you know, I hate to look at it that way, but that's the truth of the matter. It somebody is. is irresponsible or maybe has a bad situation in their life and they devalue the price of their house to a point where you and I are interested in it.
0: And that's where we make our spread. But once more into the frame, my friends. All right. So you're, you're doing all your your flips. You're working everywhere. You got kind of doing this hybrid where you're hiring general contractors, but you're splitting it out. Across, uh, multiple, multiple different, uh, what am I thinking of here? Professions, right? And that seemed to work the best for you.
1: Yeah. That's by far been the best. Yeah.
0: How did you manage your risk? Did you put down, did you do like your, the labor's on your own? I'll pay materials. Like, how did you manage your money? So you reduce your risk of contractor theft because that happens all the time as you brought up. Unfortunately, yes. this is part of the game,
1: right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, build, I I assume I'm going to lose something on every job, which I probably have if I look at it. But um, what's worked the best for me uh, is buying the materials and then trying my best to not pay them any money up front for the labor. I don't always succeed at that, but sometimes you kind of, put a little bit on the, on the you know risk side and and do that. But I mean, you get somebody that walks away with your money a lot. I have, yes. I, mean, I, I don't know if everybody
0: has the same experience. I'm but. raising my hand on the podcast. <laughs> you can't see it, but yeah, I, of course I worked in Detroit. So my problem was, but it's the same problem you have everywhere. Unfortunately, uh, people say they're going to do something and then they don't. And whether they stole money or not, they cost you time and material, which is the same thing as stealing money. And, A lot of times they stole money. It's a funny story. When I was circling the toilet with Urban Detroit wholesalers, my last two I thought were my best contractors, like come over, eat dinner, all that. uh, They both stole from me at the end on the last project. Never stole from me before, but when we were circling the toilet, they stole from me. And I couldn't believe it. And now I believe it, obviously. like We were in a weak spot. I don't talk to them anymore, obviously. But even the people you think Mm -hmm. wouldn't do it sometimes will if you're in a bad situation, which that was kind of a bitter lesson to learn. Um, what do you think is too much to risk? Like what's your personal limit? You're like, okay, I'll do it, but I want X down and you haven't worked with them before. Maybe you have like, do you have like any personal limits or you just kind of no, 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 or.
1: Well, I can say that the more you put out there, the more likely you're going to lose it. I mean, it's, just almost a guaranteed, uh, but as I'm learning Uh, maybe way too slow, but (laughs) the people that need that money up front likely are not going to do the good work. So the guys that are killing it and doing work, if you can get them to work for you, don't need that because they know they're going to do good work. If they're licensed, they can lean your house. So they're not too concerned there. Although it's a pain in the butt to lean a house, but, um, but I mean, they've got, if they're good at what they do, they've got measures to go against you for not paying. So, you know, the risk is kind of, you got to negotiate both ways, but, you know, sometimes I try and say, look, I'll tell you what, I'll come on your first day of work and pay you something for doing a day's worth of work. So maybe you start and then I'll go a little ahead of that. Maybe pay for a couple days worth of work, you know, kind of negotiate it that way, but it's different with everybody. Once you've worked with somebody a bunch of times, then that conversation goes away. Yeah. So so Trust like, built up, right? Yeah. So you tell them to go to a house and it's just like, okay, I'll be over there and I'll send you a bill we'll call it a day. So it, you got to work it both ways. So if you, if you can build a
0: relationship with somebody, that's the best, I think. But, well, that brings me to my next question. How do you fire your contractors? Cause <laughs> we're all going to have to fire contractors, right? Do you just send them an email, get lost? Or like, how do you, is there a procedure? You change the keys on the house or how do you let somebody go? Who's underperforming or stealing from you or just generally not getting on board the program. Yeah. Usually uh, it's, it's time.
1: That is the reason we fire them is they're just not showing up or taking too much time. So usually we just bring somebody else in and say, Hey, we're not moving forward. So that's the biggest problem that I see people get into. And I have myself is you get ahead of payments. So if you give a guy $20,000 down to start and he's doing the whole renovation, like a $40,000 reno, he's not coming back. I almost guarantee it because he's got 20 grand. Now your job only pays half as much as the new job. So that new job takes priority, and then the new job, he may intend to do your job, which I still believe they have the right intentions, but (laughs) when the new job pays twice as much as yours because he's got half your money, where is he going to go?
0: Yeah, I think we call that a moral hazard, right? Even great people can fall prey to to moral hazards. What's the worst you've been hit? What's the most that they – yeah, you know, give me your best war story with a contractor stealing your money and how it happened and and that way people, you know, yeah. and how you no, no longer do that to yourself.
1: Yeah, so it was um it was uh, I hired a general contractor who had all the the smaller laborers. And this was out really close to my house in uh Sumter Township. If you're familiar with where that is. So this is out in the country, impossible to comp. <laughs> um but the contractor took like forever. So this is where it was my own money. So it wasn't that big of a deal, but you know, uh, I didn't know the excuses as well. So it was the, Oh, you know, I'll be there tomorrow. Every excuse. Um, and you know, it, it got to the point where I, I got him to sign another contract saying then he was going to pay like money off the bill to finish it. And I thought, okay, this will solve it. And that didn't solve it. And finally asked uh, one of the guys that was working there. I was like, Hey, is this guy going to finish the job or what? Like what's, what's going on? And then he told me, he's like, yeah, you know, this and that's going on. So then when I started talking to him, so I think I had paid him, like, this is this is a major rehab. I think I had paid him, like, 70 grand already. And come to find out, he hadn't paid any labor or materials. Lean waivers. Get lean waivers. Lean waiver.
0: you hear that, folks? (laughs) Lean waivers. I
1: didn't really know what a lean waiver was or what the purpose was at at that time. But I saw work getting done, was paying for it, whatever. It made sense. But then I'm finding out. The contractors didn't get paid and they're talking about leaning. And I'm like, holy crap. This is going to end me. Like, this is it. You know, like, so, um, you know, luckily I worked with them. I said, look at, listen, we, we still got to finish the house. Let me pay you directly to do it. That was the advice of my attorney, by the way. Great advice. <laughs> so I got on their friendly side, you know, cause, cause they thought he was telling them I wasn't paying. He's telling me that he's paying them. So everybody's thinking, you know, the other guy's the bad guy. And then, uh, so I ended up working with them and, and they, you know, befriended me and kind of allowed the the payment for the rest of it to, to wash. And then, uh, you know, they had, I mean, they had lent him money to buy materials and the whole nine yards. So it was, it was pretty bad. I was pretty lucky on that one, but, um, by the time everything was said and done, I think from, from what I originally expected the work to be to what it actually cost me was about 20 grand different. And I still somehow made money on that deal. So that was, miraculous but
0: so your worst one you still made 20 grand but how much do you think he's he stole from it? it was like 20 grand that about that probably yeah but fuck
1: he did end up paying making some payments back
0: oh so i'll if, change my opinion a little bit so then. we went
1: well i went to to lara oh then, yeah like i went to like any anybody that i could file a complaint with i did and um uh, so he ended up paying like small payments for three or four years and then Finally, at the end of it, it was low enough that I needed uh, some. I needed somebody to do some contractor work, so never burn bridges. And I said, "Listen, you help me out on this, get me done with this, and I'll call it a day." And he jumped right on it and finished it for me. So,
0: you know what? Even if you're forced to do the right thing, if you do the right thing, I'll take it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: His his attorney. The best part about it was his attorney called me and he goes, "You did all this." He goes, "You know, like Lara's not going to get you paid." I said, "I know," but. He goes, what did he call it? He says, that sounds like kind of vindictive, doesn't it? I said, well, you're an attorney. You, you're supposed to be fighting for what's right. That's all this is. Yeah. I said, I'm just making sure nobody else falls into the same thing.
0: Yeah. Just so you're clear with me, if you do that to me, I'm not vindictive. I'm punitive to the extreme. Yeah. And indirect. I will burn everything down around you, and you can eat the fucking ashes. And uh, yeah, that's that's just how I play I figure the nice the nice days I was so nice before people stealing money and I, whatever <laughs> All I do now is I raise the bar there's a certain amount I won't tell you if it's below that you just get the indirect version where nobody will pretty much work with you anymore. And if it's above that number, I burn it down all around you. Right. So yeah, if I'm hurt, you're hurt worse. Yeah. So, and go tell your fucking friends too. So that's how I do it. I, I if a lawyer asked me that question, I'd be like, first of all, you're a lawyer. So fuck you. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> second, uh, yeah, I, yeah, she just take it in the butt and walk like, okay, walk it off, you know, like right at Chris Warrock says, just walk it off. Just walk. No, I'm not going to walk it off. I might walk it off and then come back and leave a dent so for people listening lar i can't remember what lar stands for it's like labor it's the michigan um licensing board for professional licenses so by him going and reporting to all the agencies anybody who goes and double checks and anybody who actually bothers to do homework on the contractor that stuff will show up so if that's a check and balance, as you it, were saying before, and right? the interesting
1: part is mutually so, assured destruction. So although everything that he's had, and again, this was an experience on this one is said he was licensed and insured. Well, when I started asking my attorney what to do, he said, he's not licensed, which is a really big no, no. So when I, when I talked to Lara, that was kind of the thing. And his attorney told me that he'll start making payments. If I retract all the things Well, you can't retract a Lara complaint. They are on it because he he called me and asked me details. I said, "Well, right now we're we're working something out." He goes, "It don't matter. This, This isn't for you." But you know, we don't we don't let people do contracting work without a license. So. So I'm sure he got in quite a bit of
0: trouble for that. Well, that'll teach him, right? That You know what? It's funny, too. If he just would have done what he should have done, he could have avoided the whole thing. I'm glad he did the right thing, though, eventually in the end. uh, Because there are people you can try and make do the right thing, and they don't. Mm -hmm. So I'm not kidding when I say that. I'll take it anyway. I can get it, even if you're forced to do the right thing. Because the right thing is the right thing, right?
1: That's why I believe a lot of these, you know, like your moral high ground thing that you said, I think a lot of them is the contractors really get into a weird thing. So you see a lot of contractors that overbook so they say, oh, I'll do six jobs at one time. And then they spend an hour at each time. And you tell them, you know, all your drive time is just messing you up. Just do one job. Tell me mine doesn't start till next week and then do mine next week and do it that way. But So I think a lot of them get overcommitted. They're afraid to say no to a job or raise the pricing. I got one guy I'd love to use, but he's always six months out because he's really good and cheap. And I tell him, listen. Charge more. Yeah, I'll pay you more to be first. <laughs> yeah, like you're under. Like I can pay you much more because I know that I I don't have to worry about you. The job would be done right and it's good, but I can't wait six months. Like you, you gotta you gotta raise your pricing, and he's he's worried about losing jobs. I go. You're months out. Every time I call you, you can afford to lose a couple of jobs. You
0: should. You're, you're underselling yourself. You should be raising, you should be raising your rates to reduce. And then you make more money per hour too. Mm-hmm. And then you see who your best clients are. That's a great, uh, top grading, right? That's a great way to, to do it. I understand how they feel though. Cause when I went out on my own, you do feel a sense of urgency. You don't want to turn away any business mm-hmm. and you know, bad times could always, come right and it might be great now but in the future maybe you don't have those jobs so i think i understand why it's not just contractors who do that i think i understand why people who run their own business maybe overcommit the things too because they're afraid if they say no to this business like somehow they won't get any more business or something so i think i understand the impulse there Mm -hmm. but to your point doesn't serve you very well you know
1: well and, and you'll learn So contractors and investors have different, you know, have different mindsets, you know. And so I'm looking at it from a business perspective. He's looking at it as a paycheck perspective. So he wants that paycheck. But, you know, you and I are always thinking, how do we tweak it? How do we make a little bit more? And if we dump off a few people, you know, if he bumped it up 20%, he'd probably still be busy. If he bumped it up 50%, He'd probably make as much and then have a bunch of weekends off. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to look at it that way, too.
0: Oh, yeah. You are my kid. Is that my – your hair looks beautiful. I've, <laughs> I forgot. It's been three years. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've aged. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> no. Bill, yeah, like, I can't believe how beautiful you are. I forgot about it, baby. Yeah. yeah. I, do, I do understand that fear, though. I right. had it a little bit, too. And I actually I had – in 2008, I felt I knew – the crash was our single greatest opportunity. So, like, my goal was to do as much as I can, and I think I did. But I still regret that I didn't do as much. I think there's some of that too in there, right? Just the fear of loss of opportunity, right? He's like, "Oh man, I don't want this opportunity to slip through my hands. Can you wait six months? No, <laughs> no, I can't. Yeah, raise your prices, sir. Raise your prices. Um, what? So that that does." 20 grand is not great, but it's not the end of the world. Um, well, and the deal was, the deal made money too. So that's yes. not really
1: that, that terrible.
0: Well, that brings me to my next question. I call it the Detroit factor because most of, actually, I think all my flips have been in Detroit. I'm trying to think if I did a flip outside of Detroit. I have wholesaled and wholesaled outside of Detroit, but I don't think I've flipped in Detroit. I call it the Detroit factor. I add, I go through and I run my numbers. And they're they're conservative. They're not super conservative, but they're realistic. I consider it. And then I throw in, depending on the price of the house, it's five to ten grand. A Detroit factor. Do you have something like that? Your fudge factor. Your I missed it factor. Something could get stalling. Contractor going to rob me. City going to, as you pointed out, Lincoln Park. Which, by the way, I had that happen to the seller. Super awesome. The seller hates the city. <laughs> of lincoln park now a crack that wasn't even a trip hazard had to replace half the driveway because of it but you you get where i'm going with this right so
1: so um not particularly not really on purpose i think i overestimate costs on purpose so i just kind of round everything up when i'm doing it i know that's like the
0: least professional way to do it but it's worked i don't know You got 50 was uh but so you do account for it just, just in higher, you're just more conservative going in on your numbers that you don't have to add that factor in because you feel comfortable enough with your numbers that even if you miss something, like would you say it's like five percent wiggle room, ten percent wiggle room? Is there a percentage you would estimate? Or I think it depends on the job.
1: So, I mean, so I've steered away from really big jobs, so those are really hard to get right. So, when you got a big 3,300-square-foot 3, house in Clinton Township, which was a terrible disaster, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, you've got – there's so many variables in a house that big that it's very easy to miss. But going back to the bungalow, yeah. the 1,100-square-foot 1, bungalow, it's hard to screw that up. I mean, you're – if you just – you know, I, I learned this from uh, George from the Facebook Yeah, group. George P. He goes – you know, he said something like, why wouldn't you replace cabinets? So, before I was thinking, well, the cabinets are good. We'll keep them. And you know what property I'm talking about, too. I know
0: exactly which one. Yeah. But did not make it easier.
1: (laughs) But, you know, then he said, well, why not just replace all of them? And I started thinking, well, if I just put an extra two, three grand in for cabinets in in that size house, that's all it's going to cost you. It really doesn't make sense not to. And then, um, so I've always done them since. So, we always replaced everything in the vanity and everything, toilet and the bathroom. We always do everything in the kitchen. So now, there's almost nothing that can screw up other than major electric or plumbing issues. A flip that's on 1,100 square foot bungalow, because the the numbers are always the same. Mm. I mean, you're just always going to be right there at about twenty twenty five thousand bucks to do. You know, plus foundation or plus roof if those are on there. Lincoln Park plus the driveway. Yeah. Always put twenty five hundred <laughs> for the driveway. But. Yeah, I mean it's, uh,
0: it held up our deal two weeks. They they didn't catch it on the first one. They came out to reinspect. They caught it and they're like, oh yeah, you got to fix this. I'm like, oh my
1: god. Well, Lincoln Park's got a wonderful uh, two inspection deal that uh, Dave Roberts gets real bent out of shape about. So if he's listening, we'll poke at him. Shout out to my buddy Dave. <laughs> but so they'll do uh, a reinspect. They do an external ex- inspection. So they don't they drive by basically and look at your house. And then they'll do, you know, repairs that you need to do. The new driveway, downspouts, things like that. So they'll charge you for that inspection. When we buy it, we know that the seller is not going to take responsibility for those. So we take responsibility for it. And then we have to pay the inspection fee and get it done. Well, you got six months to do that. And then you're going to sell the house. So you're not taking six months to sell the house. So you're going to get the inspection at the same time. Well, they make you get two. So they make you get the one to complete and close out the first one, and then you got to schedule the next one. So we like to schedule them a day apart so that they have to go out both times, so they realize how dumb it is. But
0: I liked that you're passive aggressive with that, sir. Yeah. I'll comply <laughs> in a passive aggressive manner, but I'm not going to let you do the same
1: drive by. Nope. You're coming
0: out twice. Yeah. you're gonna earn. You're gonna earn my money. Thank you very much.
1: And Dave, I haven't knock on wood had this problem, but Dave says he's had where he passed and then failed the same day that's hilarious. <laughs> so then he had to go do more. So, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen to me, but
0: I, the city probably doesn't even understand how hilarious the irony is in that situation. They're completely unconcerned so long as they got both inspection fees. But yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. It, Sorry, Dave. <laughs> We're well, laughing at your expense, but it's hilarious.
1: Yeah. We had uh you know, another one we had there and I'll, I'll say this too. I do like Lincoln park. I, I think John who runs it does very good. And I think he kind of came into a mess and he's, working on cleaning that up but uh, so anytime I've ever talked to John he's made it fair but we had uh one time we had uh an inspection for the foundation work and he came in and saw we were doing interior renovations and gave us a stop work order if you never had one of those they're terrible (laughs) you're not allowed to work any further so I went that same day I went into Lincoln Park and I said hey I need to pull a permit and she asked what I was doing I said all the stuff we're doing she said it doesn't require a permit I go well put something on there that requires a permit (laughs) because this guy's got a stop work order and I want it off. And she's like, well, I don't know what to do it for. I'm like, put something there (laughs) because I want to write the $150 check. So you guys go away. And then she she just looked at me like I was the craziest guy, but it's easier sometimes to pay that 150 bucks, get them their money and move on.
0: You bring up an excellent point. You're supremely easygoing guy, right? And if you're going to do flips, you you are essentially in business with the city you're doing the flip in, right? At least Absolutely. if they have a CFO, some sort of inspection process, which is almost every city in America, right? So they're like your partners, whether you want them or not. It sounds kind of how you manage them is like in a very pragmatic way. I've worked with investors in the fast where they make it antagonistic, um, which I highly do not recommend, mm-hmm. right? It's It would be like if you have a partner – you you know you and garrett and all of a sudden you, you, your goal is to be as antagonistic as possible to garrett that's like not the best way to get something done especially when it's not voluntary right mm-hmm. like the power is uh disproportionate right and all in their favor so how do you kind of handle that
1: well i i think it starts with an outlook so you know you hear all these people that are like oh man the city is horrible and they're against them which i've got those stories too but and when you really break it down, we have the same goals. Our, our interests are aligned. So if you're a decent flipper, you want to provide a good product and a good you know, home for somebody to move into. They are also inspecting. A lot of people will argue with me on this. But the, the basis and the premise of an inspection is to make sure that the house is safe for the person buying the house and to keep the quality correct. Some people abuse that, but the basic premise is is for the right reasons. So if you look at it as we're both trying to do the right thing and we're both trying to get a house that's nice, then I, I think it's a little bit easier to to deal with those things. Sometimes you get upset when they're clearly out of line. But for the most part, you know, they're just looking for reasonable requests. They want to make sure you got GFCIs on the bathroom outlets. You know, they want to make sure that Things are safe that you did put insulation in behind the drywall so that they don't pay a gigantic heating bill for the rest of their life. You know, just basic things that I think we can both agree on that that's what we want to provide for people. We're not trying to just skip by on a house and we don't want those people. You know, we don't want those people doing renovations in our cities and giving us a bad name. No, no, we don't. So when you really look at it that way, I think it's easy to get along with them for the most part. But sometimes I think that you know, it's conflicting. So you, you get defensive and then they get defensive because I've had uh, you know, city inspectors come in, just like chewing you out. And you're like, hold on a minute. <laughs> we're, we're trying to do things the right here, way here, you know, and you know, you got, you just, they are immediately into the attack. So it's very easy to get that button heads. But
0: one of my favorite things to do is to take an antagonistic conversation and completely turning it around. Mm-hmm. And if you just be the reasonable person, It actually usually turns around pretty fast because they're looking for a fight. And if you just don't give it to them, it it takes all the steam out. Like, where does it go? It's kind of ridiculous. It just fades, just, eh, it just kind of goes away. Usually anyway, that's been my experience, you know, and now you're on a more even playing field, right? Although I will say that's not my first reaction.
1: No, it's tough. There's, you've known me through a couple where I've been, been on a shape.
0: Yes. (laughs) They will put you in a corner sometimes,
1: and you're like, really?
0: (laughs) Really? Yeah, they were ridiculous on that.
1: Well, the the worst one, I won't mention the city, but I probably won't buy there unless it's a smoking deal. (laughs) But, I mean, we did paint. So we took the wallpaper down, we painted, we took the carpet out, we did the floors, and that's it. Then the city found out it was vacant. So they have a vacant property inspection. So they never inspected this house for the history of its being, except for when I sell it because it was vacant for more than 30 days. And then they tagged on like $20,000 of additional work. They did. On a carpet and paint renovation. So that was a, a huge, a huge deal. But although I did get pretty bent out of shape when I finally got and talked to the guy in charge, we kind of, found a decent middle ground. Although I still spent 20 grand, they wanted like 40. So we got, we got off our fair and we still were able to make some money on the deal. So
0: that's kind of why this is how petty I could be. And I don't think I'd ever do this, but I think this sometimes this is why I want some fuck you money just so you can blow up a house. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is just totally pure ego. Right. But there's part of me that desperately wants to do that. I don't think I ever would. But that was kind of the situation. Like, I'm like, oh my God, talk about reaching in, squeezing a rock. There's there's nothing left to get out. And they're like, no, there's more here. Yeah, it's like, we could well, definitely do more.
1: So I, I did bluff a little, little hardball on that one because I remember telling him, I go, listen, I'm going to take it off the market today. If you want me to do 40 grand renovations, I'll take it off and it'll sit here and be blight for your city forever. I said, you can ticket me all you want, but you'll be taking it back and I'll burn it down before you get it. There you go. <laughs> and he's like, oh no, hold on. And then I also brought up some of the lawsuits that other cities are getting for their inspections, and I said, "Believe me, for forty grand, I will I'm buy filing a lawsuit. Yeah, <laughs> because an attorney is way cheaper than forty grand." Oof. I said, "For five grand, I can't afford an attorney, but for forty, I can probably afford a good one that will beat you." <laughs> and you don't want to do that. So then he was like, oh, just "Let me come out there." So I got the not the
0: inspector, but I got the supervisor of that city to come out and look at it, and so we negotiated a lot of stuff follow the chain of command too, right? Work your way up. If you always start as low as you can. And then if that doesn't work, work your way up the chain of command. If you just try and skip to the top, I don't think that probably would have been as effective. Right. But now you're the concerned citizen. I did everything you fucking wanted me to do. What are you doing to me, man? Come on. What the hell? Then when you go to the top, you're more likely to get, I think, although still 20 grand, that did suck. That's a, Walk it off, Reed. Walk it off. It was terrible, though.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess, you know, that's so that's kind of another reason, too, that those Detroit properties scare me. Now, there are people, there are Detroit houses that are much more expensive, but doing those, you know, those people that buy like the $5,000 house and put 10 in into it and sell it for 20 or 30, that scares me more than the bigger ones because there's
0: no margin for error. There's not. Yeah. I try and dissuade people from from doing that. I try and tell most people your goal should be to make 40 grand. Mm -hmm. If it's less than $200,000, your goal should be to make 40 grand after Realtor's fees, closing costs, whatever you're financing, all all that stuff, because 40 can become 30 real fast, and if things go bad, 40 can become 10. Mm -hmm. And if you're shooting for 20, You're out. (laughs) Now you just did a wholesale feel if you're lucky and you, but you did all the work for a flip or even worse, you lose money, which I've lost. I'm raising my hand now too. And that, that is not, uh, it's painful. That's not fun day. That's bad. That's bad day. You're like, Oh my God. No, and,
1: and, and the thing to think about is, you know, that $20,000 for whatever it was cost exactly the same in Detroit, if not maybe more than it does in that city or would in Ann Arbor, like the, those costs don't change because you have a $5,000 house. You know, it's just, it is what it is. If you're yeah, tile, cost, tile,
0: out. electrician, you know. Actually, in some ways, it's funny. In some ways, it's easier in Detroit because there's no CFO. Yeah. So, but you do still have to pull permits, but it's such a pain to ask to pull permits. A lot of people just roll the dice on the permits unless mm-hmm. they get caught. But then if you get caught, you're doing everything. Mm-hmm. And that's a weird way to kind of describe it. I don't recommend that, but... it's at least easier in the suburbs to get permits on things and the turn around and, uh, and a faster period of time. I feel like people don't play it as loose in the suburb for that reason. So
1: that may be another reason I stay out of Detroit. So I, whether it works or not, I think it, I think it works and pays off, but I try very hard to do things by the books as much as possible, which is kind of some of the reason I get so irritated when these, you know, when the inspectors come in and attack you and it's like, Hey, look, man, I've done ABCD, And, you know, here's where we're at and, you know, what else did you want me to do to not be where you're like screaming at me, you know, but.
0: Well, yeah, your attitude is they're coming from the best intention and they're coming in thinking you're the bad guy sometimes, right? Like, wait, hold on. I'm not, I swear to God, I'm not the bad guy here.
1: Which they exist. They're out there, but, you know, there are a ton, probably more than there is not good investors out there that are trying to do the right thing, produce a good product and sell them. I mean, at least most of the people I've hung out with and met.
0: Almost all of them. Yeah. It is a small percentage of people that – this is true everywhere, right? It's a small – although small in this case is probably like 15%, 20%, right? But Mm -hmm. that's a minority of us. And unfortunately, they can do a lot of damage. They can. Yeah, really. I think that's why a lot of these inspectors – not that I'm cutting them any slack. (laughs) Inspector, if you're listening, do your shit Right. But you walk into some with those guys, you're just antagonistic. If you just came from that appointment and then you show up to read Starkey and you're just ready to bang, yeah. you know, like, Yeah. my last three went terrible and I they're just ready for blood right here. Like easy killer. I'm yeah. fine. I'm going to, what you want done. Yeah. <laughs> let's we're, walk, let's talk this through. We're trying to make your taxes higher by raising the value of the
1: property. Yeah. I, I promise we're doing the right thing, but
0: well, like grandpa said, you get more with sugar than you do with shit in those situations. Right. Although I like that. You are doing some high stakes poker right there for 40 grand. I could afford a lawyer and like, whoa, 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 whoa. that's right.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I was looking, so I think, I think that one we netted like 15. So 40 would have put me in the negative, you know? So I was thinking there's no way I'm not, I'm not going in the negative for this or for something that is not something I missed. You know, we, we didn't get into the electrical. He wanted me to replace all the wiring in the house. And then, because uh, it was an oven tube, but it was like in the walls. And then uh, they had replaced some throughout the history of the house. So, like, it had a new breaker box, and all the exposed wiring in the basement was good. It was the stuff in the attic that, that was the yeah. big concern? But I said, we didn't touch anything. Like, we didn't do anything. I've owned the house for like 30 days, <laughs> I have done nothing but paint it. Like, how are you adding all this stuff on there? But they managed to do it.
0: That is the irony of the inspection. It's fine for 50 years until today, and then it's not fine. But the fact of the matter is it probably wasn't fine for 50 years either, but that doesn't seem to bother anybody. <laughs> it's like,
1: <laughs> well, from my understanding, I'm not an electrician, but from the electricians that I hire to do the work, you know, they tell me that knob and tube itself is not dangerous. So it's not, it's not the wiring that's the problem. It's, because it was so easy to break into and add other things that people who don't know what they're doing tap into it and mess it all up but if you don't touch the system it's actually fairly safe so that's why they don't make you replace it in the walls because it's still going to be good it's it's been in there for you know that house was what 100 years old yeah i think it's like
0: 110 this
1: is an old ass house so my one electrician was arguing with me he goes how do you know the stuff we use now is good Cause that stuff hasn't been around for a hundred years. This stuff's <laughs> been, this stuff is a hundred years yep. old and the house is still standing. The stuff we're putting in there's only been around for what, 40 years or whatever. So how do we know that hasn't stood the test of time?
0: The thing that was always important to me was to update the breaker panel because when a lot of these houses were built, what was the electrical load on the home? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was like a couple of light bulbs, maybe a, washer and dryer and like compared to now with multiple flat screen tvs multiple computers devices you plug in everywhere like that matters way more for safety i think that was something big i did in everyone whenever you had the fuses or even the older like 60 amp or whatever, you know, upgrade that, that was pretty important to me because these Detroit houses, they were all kind of like that, especially back in the day. Not as many now. A lot of them have been rehabbed so many times or <laughs> they're already updated.
1: That's a good point. If you're taking down uh, an older house that has like two outlets in the room and you're doing any drywall work. Upgrade. Yeah. Put some more outlets in yep. there. So I got, you know, we did uh, we did a house uh, that you know, was older. It had like the one outlet per room or two outlets in a room. And we had all the drywall off and did the electric. So we had a, the rough inspection for the electric passed, put all the drywall up, painted it, put the covers on the outlets, did the final inspection for the electric. He says, you need more outlets. And I said, not now. <laughs> I said, <laughs> we had everything open, but they're like, sometimes we miss stuff. So that was so sad. Yeah. And and you have no recourse. It's, you know, I said, well, wouldn't, wouldn't your opportunity be on the rough inspection? Typically, typically, but sometimes we miss things. (laughs) What did you come for then? That's (laughs) like, that was your only job, but so yeah, I always put them in and it's a good resale thing too, but
0: well, especially in the modern age, right? These houses, I love a lot of these old houses, but not all of it is great. A lot of it needs to be modernized, like some of these kitchens and stuff where you open them up and people just live in rooms and close doors to keep their heating bill low. And that's just not how people live anymore. But especially I was thinking like things I missed. I should have invested in batteries like 10 years ago. Right. Just think what batteries control our life now. Right. And our electricity needs to keep going up and being safe. So, all right, let's move into, I think people have a pretty good idea did I, did I miss anything? Like in your your rehab, your management of the rehab, how you track it, how do you control your costs, keep you know, how to deal with city inspectors? Is, is there anything you think I missed in there that would be valuable that you can add to people?
1: Well, you touched on it, and then I we didn't get to it. I was I well, let's go thinking, back to it uh, then. Yeah, we we talked about going to these meetups and the value that you get from them. So any new investor that I talk to, the first and sole advice that I give them is go to as many as you can. Because I got to a point where I realized that I couldn't run into a problem that I couldn't fix. Not because I was smart or I knew everything. That was when you were talking about systems. As I knew that I had a phone call to make that I could call somebody and say, hey, I got myself into this problem. How do I fix it? And they would have already done it three times. So these meetups are so valuable and I've met lenders that have given me money. I've met contractors, less contractors, but I've got tons of deals for meetups. I've got so many things for meetups that I just cannot stress that enough. You know, and it's so frustrating when I tell somebody that you need to go to meetups and then you talk to them a month later. Well, I haven't really gotten to any. And it's like, well, then what are you going to do? <laughs> Cause there's so many resources that I personally have gotten from these meetups. My partner with Garrett, uh, you know, he, I met him at a meetup. Just, I mean, almost everything that I've done is the success can be tied
0: some way, shape or form from networking at these meetups. Yeah. I think people feel like they have to do it alone. Um, also we were talking about before the podcast, you're an extremely introverted person mm-hmm. and you, Cause this is a good segue. You went to all the meetups and you actually helped start one meetup and then started your own meetup on your own as well. And you are not like me. I'm extremely extroverted, right? Yep. You're kind of, you're not polar opposite, but you're way more introverted and you thought it was important enough to still go out and do. So even if you are that introverted person, you, you don't have to do it alone. I'm not talking like kumbaya shit either, right? We're not getting together, singing around a campfire, right? But we do help each other and we do kind of look out. Yes, we're competing against each other too, but it's more like fair play, right? If we're going head to head on a deal, that's different than let me help you out with this contractor. or I need a new electrician or um, Like on the Lincoln Park driveway, I needed somebody to pour in the winter, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Two pads, which, by the way, I try and do that. I had to reach out to my network, too, to be able to get that solved. Thank you, Mr. Kevin Wobbles, for hooking us up, turning yeah, that, that around awesome. so we can still uh, still uh close the deal. So even if you are introverted, you do need to build not just your net worth, but your net work. You, every problem isn't yours alone. Odds are, to Reed's point. Somebody else has done it multiple times. That's also the part of this podcast Why I bring people like read on. So you don't even have to, but you should physically go out and do it. It's something Gina and I were super excited about when we moved here is to go to all the meetups, but yeah, I can say if you,
1: if you listen to, uh, if you want, if you want, if you're thinking about starting a podcast and you're worried about how good you can do, go look at my first podcast <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I still have a long way to go to be at, at your level, but you know I, I look at it and, you know, people give you positive feedback, but in the back of your head, you're going, it eh, wasn't that good. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm you know, like, it's not even live recorded, but you're still just nervous. But you could get better at these things. And, yeah. you know, the meetups, you know, it, it takes me a while to talk to people, but they see you and they go, man, I've seen that guy here like uh, three months in a row. Like I know that he's doing something or at least wanting to do something. So I think, I think it's a big a big importance.
0: I agree. And I think anything worth doing is worth doing poorly too. If you go back and listen to my first podcast with Alan Daniels, uh, I'm not even beginning to start to sound good until the forties and fifties. Right. And it just takes time, time on task. I'd rather see somebody start something and do it poorly. Cause it's way easier to get better over time than it is to be great. Your first time out, that doesn't make any sort of sense, right? You're putting on your first roof. It's not going to go smoothly. You pour in your first driveway and you've never worked concrete before. How do you think it's going to go? Mm-hmm. You know, it's poorly probably.
1: Well, that's, you know, that's um, <laughs> so that I may talk a little bit about the importance of partnering. So knowing that, you know, I'm very introverted. Like you said, when I partnered with Garrett, who is very extroverted, So he was putting all of our houses on Facebook and doing all this stuff. And I like panicked. I'd be like, Oh my gosh, how could you do that? Look how messy it is. You know, in my head, I'm thinking, I can't show like I got the guy didn't even clean up his mess. He did the tile and there's pieces everywhere. I'm, I'm freaking out in my head, but then now everybody starts recognizing me. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, so in my head, I'm thinking that's terrible. Like this is embarrassing. I got this terrible work there, you know, and you know, when you do a house, you know, that every line that's crooked and you know, every paint spot that was missed and you see it, but you know, nobody else does. But, um, so that was a major bump in, in my career maybe is when people started noticing me cause Garrett was doing all the work when Garrett wanted to do the part of uh, the meetup. I was like, no way, man, was, you know, I'll start it up and nobody will show up and I'd be, you know, humiliated, but he's like, let's do it. Let's just get it done. I said, I'll support you, but you're putting your name on it, not me. And then, you know, we had like five people show up and then 10 people show up. And it was a year before we got more than 12 people there. But now there's like 30, 40 people that show up
0: and it's a big success. So time on task. Perfection is the enemy of growth too. That's something I learned working with Joe Delia. I watched, it's amazing to watch how much he can screw up and still succeed Mm -hmm. and just gives me the confidence to go out there and screw up too. And then just get better and better over time. If you want to grow anyway, that's how, uh, how much you learn from your successes, not much, not much. Right. And the key is though, as we've been talking this whole time is limiting your risk when you do make the mistake because you're going to make mistakes. So how do you manage your risk when you're making these mistakes? And yeah, I, I
1: think, I mean, I, I, live by failure is in, is important and ne- a necessity to success. You can't do it unless you're going to go out there and be, Hey, if I screw up, I screw up, but you got to get out there. And I think, I don't remember what book I got this from, but failure, you can't look at it as a, a noun. It's a verb, you know, so you, you fail. So what? You're not a failure. You just, yep. you screwed up. You, you fell down. But what? how did you handle it when you fell down? Did you get back up or did you go, oh, I'm done. I'm never flipping another house again, which I could have done. You know, I mean, certainly with a different wife or a different attitude of her, I may have done that, you know, but having her support was was important and that critical step to get there. But I'm very grateful that I am here. You know, I certainly would be in a much worse place if I had never got back up and done it.
0: Well, failure is inevitable. It's how you manage it, I think, is the most important part. And some people have a hard time with it. But like anything, if you practice failing, which seems like a funny thing to do, and you can limit Mm -hmm. your your losses when you fail, uh, you grow exponentially. So, yeah, get comfortable being uncomfortable if you want to grow super fast, which is to my point – what made you guys decide to start Dirty House Club Buyers? I know it's you and Garrett, and I know Garrett that was like your first, and you have another one too. I'm getting to it, another meetup, right? But what kind of made you decide to start that?
1: The meetup or the yeah, company meetup? Um, well, it was Garrett's idea, so it was just uh, so he. I mean, he's he's accurate, and I agree with him that the support of being known. So the more we started to be known with him taking pictures and posting on Facebook. The more deals came to us. So we weren't looking for them, but people say, Hey, I got this deal here. You want it? Well, okay. And you know, financing started coming to us. Things started coming to us for no reason other than, Hey, I know Reed or I know Garrett. Let's, let's do this. So we thought, well, what better way to do it than to just be the central hub of a, a meetup, you know, and we modeled a lot after, after you and looked at your success and, you know, I mean, just the amount of influence that you have on the community that isn't solely but is very strongly from the base of starting that meetup and growing the success of that. So we uh, we did take a lot of that. Garrett I think um wanted to create something in that area that wasn't a for-profit meetup. I think that was a big motivator for him. Amen. And uh you know it's and I I support him on that too. I believe that there's there's ways to make money and I don't think that educating is one of them. I think we're moving to an era where information is free. So there's no reason to pay for stuff or buy it. I think that people put content out there to build their brand. And as time and technology grows, I think that quality of content is going to grow and grow. And really being a guru kind of
0: disappears and isn't needed. The Internet is getting stronger and stronger that way. That's what I like about your meetups too and there's a lot more like this. And I was I don't think I was the first one, but I was one of the first ones where we kind of changed the script a little bit. Mm -hmm. Where the purpose of the meetup was to serve the community instead of to make a profit from the community. It's not like we don't make profit from the community, but the both of our meetings are set up to serve the investor, Mm -hmm. right? Or the person who comes in. So yeah, there are no costs to come in. You can come in. It's super I mean, people talk about, you know, everybody having access to everything. What's better than free, right? Like if you're trying to keep barriers to entry low mm-hmm. and you really want people to change their life or think about new things, it does require redesigning the way it was done before. Okay. Right. At least if you we're going to use the air quotes inclusive, right? I want to be supremely inclusive. And what's better than free meetup, free podcast, right? So you guys serve your community and your investors, which is one of the reasons why I think it's grown so much too, so fast, uh, people will respond to that. You know, they know you're real, like if you're really trying to help and they can Mm -hmm. tell that you really care to your point though, you say for no reason, when you do a pod or a podcast or a meetup all the time, that's no reason what you're doing is you're demonstrating to the community that you're reliable and you can follow a schedule and you can create content and do stuff and show up to meetings. And so that's not no reason, you know? Yeah. Well,
1: I think the, the, the meeting is direct or indirect. So we're not looking for, uh, somebody asked a friend of mine, uh, we've been asked it too, but a friend of mine, Jamie Gruber has a large meetup and he he gets a, a pretty decent size, not your size, but, and a lot of people have challenged him, why, why are you not charging? Because he brings in really uh, qualified speakers to do presentations and does the whole deal. And he said, that's not what I'm here for. I'm, no. I'm trying to build relationships so when I do syndicate my next deal that I've got people just right there. Smart man. So it's he goes, I could charge 20 bucks a person, but it's going to be peanuts compared to what I'm going to gain from this when I do a deal or all that stuff. So, and I I feel that's... That's where everybody's moving towards.
0: I hope so. I've also been the person who didn't have $20 too. And I don't want the reason why somebody doesn't come to be the $20. Yeah. And I'm not just, I'm not just saying that. If you have, if, if, if you've never been in a spot where $20 was everything, I don't think maybe they can under, they can understand, right? Mm But I, I am a firm believer in keeping, I'm a capitalist pig. I want to keep barriers to entry as low as humanly possible. And he's thinking obviously in terms of quarter centuries instead of quarters of a year too. Mm-hmm. So good job Jimmy. two thumbs up for well, that.
1: Yeah, and your, your loyalty too is, is – so when somebody reaches out and helps you, and I think of some people that have helped me along the way, which we've all got them, but if they ask for a favor, there is no way I'm not there. Oh, yeah. Because you know they got you to the level that you are today – you know, whoever you are, but you always, you know, you always want to pay that back. And and there's some people that I would be forever indebted to, you know, that, that, that have got me here. There's like you said earlier, there's no way I could be where I am today without other people. Yes, It's not me. I'm not smarter than anybody here. I'm I'm not better in any way, shape or form, but I have surrounded myself with some very intelligent people that are doing amazing things that can help me get through the next step.
0: Yeah. Humble yourself to the fact that you're probably not all that great at any one thing, but your network can be. And then you can, you basically like leasing greatness from them, right? Mm -hmm. That's the same thing with books. People have done things. You just humble yourself to realize I'm not the only one who's ever done this. And then the whole world opens up to you too, which is pretty, pretty amazing. That was, that's exciting thing about going to meetups too. That I like, cause first of all, you never know who you're going to meet. And I'm always surprised by what I learn and it never seems to, and what I learn about people, what I learn about deals. And then I also like the, this is the part I love. I'm extroverted, right? It's, it, it feels like cheers. You know, you're getting together, yeah. you get, you get to meet lots of new people too, but you get to see, and let's face it, we, we work all the time, right? So it's kind of nice to get together and see everybody too. So there is that community aspect, even though we're kind of all lone rangers to a certain extent we have these networks where we help each other at the same time, too, and they're informal networks, but it's a powerful network to be a part of, you know.
1: Somebody made a point to me. They said, um, you know, like when I was working at CarQuest and O'Reilly, we had managers that you could call, you know, we had manager meetings that we would go to. So you had a network of like minded, similar people in real estate, other than meetups, you don't have that. So you are working out by yourself most times your spouse doesn't care what you're doing or doesn't really find any interest in it and that's fine. I mean there's some couples that work together, but, you know, in our case she doesn't really have a, a lot of interest in, in what I do and that's fine. But so you need that network of people that you can say, Oh man, I'm just really struggling with this one, you know, like just to get it off your chest and then go back and, and feel revitalized when you go back to that deal. So I think I think it's that network that you you have it your corporate job but you don't have when you're on your own
0: yeah i would say don't eat alone and don't suffer alone you know what i'm saying times are good share times are bad share you know you, you don't have to to go through any of this alone well obviously you got over your fear of starting a meetup when you partnered with garrett and that led at some point here we're getting to where you decided to pull the parachute on single family homes and dive into multi units only. And kind of during this process, not only did you start a meetup, but you started a podcast. How did you kind of come to that conclusion and kind of walk me through that and I'll have some more questions too?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of factors that came into play. Probably the biggest one that comes to mind is <clears throat> so there's there's a time and point when you wanna do something, there's a time and point where you say you're gonna do something, there's a time and a point where you decide to do something. So it was. Uh, I, I had decided I'm doing multifamily, so it didn't matter how long it took me, what's what failures happened along the way, or what happened. I am doing multifamily. End of story. So part of that, when I looked around, I said, "Well, I have to build a brand. If I'm going to be raising multi millions of dollars to buy these apartments, my network is not big enough. So I need to extend my network, and that was the only way I knew how to do it." So it wasn't a matter of, do I want to do this or or what? But this was a part of being who I saw myself as. So it just when you define yourself as a certain thing, then part of those things become necessary.
0: I like it, and I like your podcast. I wish you did it in person, but that's just my implicit bias. I prefer podcasts like this in person. But you are getting better on the podcast, too. So that's kind of... Fun to see. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we all get better. It's like if you do the same thing over and over and over, That's you're way better at flipping now, 50 houses down the road and on the podcast. Let's talk about how you started your meetup and what is the purpose of your your new meetup now that you have. And if I'm not mistaken, it's a Starkey multifamily meetup, meetup yeah. right? Okay, good. I nailed it.
1: Well, uh, so it really just started with uh, kind of the same thing of building a network. Um, getting, you know, getting lots of people involved. I I think there's huge value in, like I said, helping people who are trying to figure out how to get to the next stage. I think if I knew and understood what a syndication was five years ago, I may have skipped single family altogether. Um, but you know, sometimes if you're not hanging around those people, you don't ever hear it. Nobody ever talks about syndication and taking money from a 100 different people together and buying something massive that you could never dream of buying yourself. Um, and, you know, I just didn't have the natural thought process to get there. But So I think there's a lot of people that probably could be very good at this, that just don't have any experience or any friends that are doing it. So I think that there's a lot of value there. And not only that, but I think those people could offer a lot of value themselves. So they may not have, um, you know, all the money, but they may have a deal. Or they may not have a deal, but they have a lot of money to put in. So, you know, that's the whole purpose of syndication is taking the strong suit of everybody, pulling it together, and making something big happen together. So that's that was the main motivation. And, and then, you know, I kind of wanted to get away from, you know, same, same with Garrett, piggyback on his process of, I don't think this information needs to be charged for, you know, I'm not going to spend, you know, weeks on the phone with somebody trying to help them. But if I can give advice to a group of people and help them out or point them in the right direction of, Hey, you know, if you want to learn about X, there's this source here or there's that and it's all available. And, and if I can do it in an hour's worth of time every month that benefits me as
0: well, then, then it's a win-win. Well, I love obviously, right? But I'm going to, I'm going to say it. I love the combination of a meetup podcast too. Cause if you're talking about the ultimate. Uh, being ultimately inclusive, mm-hmm. right? Then we need to think of terms of it's a global economy too. And we should be globally inclusive, right? Also people can't always make every single meetup, right? Like I want to go to lots of meetups, mm-hmm. train a shit ton of agents, got a ton of like, it just time gets away. The cool thing about a podcast is, or a YouTube channel, or you get where I'm going with that. Mm-hmm. It's an electronic way for people to still stay connected to you even though life got busy and they couldn't be there. Right. And even poor people can get a phone and listen to your podcast for free from any streaming service. Mm-hmm. So at least American poor, obviously not like African poor, but in America poor, you can still get a cell phone. You can still get access, some access to the internet and you can still stream and listen. or if you're working from work and maybe you're trying to figure out how to work your way out of your job, it's, it's a great way for you to stay connected um, with the people. And I think the two go hand in hand really, really well. It's super close. also, you're taking people from your digital life, pushing them to real life and then you're taking people from your real life and pushing them to your digital life. So I happen to think it's a great combo, obviously, which is why I'm doing it, but that's why I love about what you're doing too is the podcast combo there he is on iTunes by the way I did I did confirm that (laughs) yeah I've been watching him on just YouTube but whatever you you, you (laughs) can actually get on iTunes and uh still got a lot to learn from you yeah and and do that well hey I'm still learning too I didn't tell you my story how I thought I was on Spotify for like two and a half years but I did it (laughs) wrong (laughs) yeah People kept coming up. So you, you're not on Spotify. I'm like, Oh, I'm on Spotify. Yeah. Three months ago, I go look fuck. I'm not on Spotify. <laughs> I did it wrong. I had to go back and redo it. I am on Spotify now, but yeah, that's what I mean. You got to start, right? Yeah. Just start. And then you'll figure out and get, and get better. Um, did you decide to do the podcast at the same time you decided to do the meetup or did you do the meetup first and then go, you know, I really should do a podcast. Hmm. I don't know what order those came in. I remember.
1: Yeah, I don't know. They were probably about the same time, so it was kind of like a, you know, all hands on deck. If, if you've known me for long, as I'm not good at doing small things. <laughs> like I may start out thinking it's going to be small, but it always ends up being a massive project. So I got to be careful what I start because it's I just don't know how to do things simple and small. But
0: well, I like the focus, right? The the why chase two rabbits getting none. Chase, you know, pick a rabbit and then like really, really go after it. I like that too. What is the purpose of your podcast and how do you approach your podcast? Obviously I have a particular way I like to do mine, but let's give people a little idea of kind of how your, your podcast, how you approach your podcast, how you pick your guests the kind of things you talk about it's not a marathon like this either by the yeah. way so you don't have to
1: <laughs> if you're still listening you'd be way done with mine
0: yeah right? it'd be i'd be so it's it's in smaller chunks too which i know a lot of people prefer i definitely like these marathon two three hour podcasts i love fucking talking about it. i could talk to you probably for i don't know to the end of time and not run running a to few talk times about. yeah
1: i'm like oh there goes my day i just yeah, just talk on the
0: phone. Like it's hard to get me to, to, to actually shut up. And on a side note too, <laughs> by the way, we've actually, and I say raised pigs together very loosely because he raised the pigs. <laughs> they were at his place, but we're, we're like pig raising brothers yeah. now too. Yeah. Mangalitza, by the way. Fuck you, Michigan state. How do you like them apples? So still got some give people an idea how you approach your podcast.
1: So my goal is to kind of uh, appeal to the semi experienced audience. So I try and approach it with, as I'm going through things and learning things that I'll find an expert in that area. So this benefits me by the way, as well. And I'll say, okay, well, I'm looking at insurance. So let me get the, instead of just saying, Hey, give me an insurance quote. I say, hey, give me an insurance quote, but let's also go on and do a podcast so I can ask you all the dumb questions and all the smart questions. So I can get on and get a full understanding, you know, without really wasting a half hour of your time where you're only benefiting me. Let's benefit everybody and get all that out there. So I think there's a lot of questions that people don't ask because they may be simple or they're afraid to ask where I get to go there, not only just ask the questions that I don't know, but it doesn't, you don't know which ones I know and don't. So I get to ask <laughs> all the questions that you might, might be on your mind. So, um but I want to t- kind of tailor it to, to grow with me. So as I go and get a, get my buildings and move forward, then you know all the people that I deal with. I'm I'm always in, So everybody I talk to now, I'm like, you want to be on a podcast? So you want to be a podcast? So so as I go through and do, you know, due diligence on you know the the water conservation. You know, we're, we're I'm going to bring on somebody for that coming here soon. But all these things that I do, I'm actually doing them. So the the podcast will kind of tell a story of of my career moving from start to finish. So that's kind of the the high level vision of it.
0: I like how you approach it. You're showing your work live Mm -hmm. too, which is is messy, but I love it. It's like real reality, right? He's not kidding when he's having these conversations. He's not afraid to ask any any question. And there's like a, I think that kind of what makes a podcast great too is there's a certain amount of vulnerability, right, where you're admitting when you don't know or and you're kind of just wandering through it to, to get there. I, I really like the approach too. So I appreciate it. I think another 50 podcast going to be fucking great. Maybe not even that many could be awesome. Yeah. N- not afraid to show your work too. Don't be afraid to, to look stupid, you know, like that's, or to do it poorly or to, to not know, I think is the, the excellent point here. And don't be afraid to, to show it to somebody too. I mean, no, we I all start somewhere.
1: I know that was one point I really wanted to make in the beginning and, and still try and, show it. So while I'm showing my progress from start to finish, you know, I'm kind of telling that story of the people I'm working with. I'm trying to show that it's not simple because you look at a lot of the people and no disrespect for the people that are doing it. And even people I talk to that have done deals that are, you know, they're like 10 deals into it. They're super experienced. They're like, it's not that hard. Well, it's your opinion changes. So In my head, I think flipping a house is pretty easy, but I also think back. I do remember buying that first house, shaking in my boots, like, wow, did I just spend all that money? Like, what did I just do? (laughs) You know, like, so, so it's, it's perspective. It's easy to think something you've done a hundred times is easy, but when you document going through that process and the struggles and the failures, you know, your first time failures and all that stuff, I think that's important to, to show. Because another point, the people who are, most of the people doing the podcast are selling something. Yes. They're selling the training. So they can't go, it's really friggin' hard. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, we, we, we want you to pay us a bunch of money. They, they got to say, well, anybody can do this. You don't need any money, but you do need $20,000 to pay me to tell you how to do it. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's the one thing I was trying to avoid is just saying, look, I'll just say what it is. It's not, it's not easy, but it's doable, but... If you think you're going to do it on 15 hours a week, try again.
0: Yeah, no. So I like to say it's simple. Uh, Simple has – it is simple. This business, what you're doing, what I'm doing, these businesses are simple Mm -hmm. businesses, right? What are we trying to do? We're trying to either rent something out for more than our debt service, refi at some point, and repeat. Or we're looking to fix something up below market value, sell it for more. And then move on to do the next project, right? However, in execution, it is fraught with danger and perils. And that's where the hard work really, really begins. But this is a simple business. So that's why
1: you have that network. Yep. So you got to have those people to ask, Hey, the, you know, I've, I've worked with some people that I've stopped working with because they don't communicate. So you got to be able to say, look, there's a problem down the road hasn't happened yet how do I fix this now? Cause what I've seen people do is they think in their head, I'm going to fix it. So I don't want to tell anybody and they keep telling themselves they're going to fix it. But by the time they realize they can't fix it, it's too far gone and they're mm. deep and they're buried. So if you're thinking about partnering with people, you want people that are going to say, look, it hasn't screwed up yet, but I see some writing on the wall that this doesn't look good. Um, so we, we were going to, well, I shouldn't tell that story. I don't want to throw anybody on the bus, but you got to make sure that people are, communicating those stories and that's one that's one reason garrett and i have always worked good together you know as is, is we always you know it there's never any communication barrier there and i think a lot of people have that barrier of communication but we've never had that struggle so it's gonna one of the very strong reasons we've been together for yeah, probably four years now. yeah three, it's been a while years, now
0: right? yeah it's been a good partnership for you guys yeah yeah now you're buying apartments we were talking before you had, you have something under contract. Don't, don't mention where. No, I'm like, not allowed to say it yet. So yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and I hate to say it because, you know, you never know. There's a lot that can go wrong from here to there.
0: There certainly, but that's okay. Let's, uh, let's chat, let's chat about it obliquely. Right. Okay. So you've been working pretty hard on this now for, for how long? It's been like what? September 2000, uh, let's see, 18. Yeah. Yeah, 2018. Yeah, that's and from something completely different, right? It, I mean, there are similarities, of course, but at the same time, it is kind of essentially an entirely different industry, even though it's in a similar, a similar branch, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the struggles and ups and downs and any failures and successes you have. And obviously, don't screw up the… <laughs> the current deal you have under contract or anything like that. But let's talk about that. Cause you could have just kept flipping forever. Mm -hmm. You could have just keep, you know, single family, but you made a decision. Why not do a hundred of these at a time or 50 of these at a time or 250 at a time, instead of one at a time, somebody else did it before. So certainly I can do it. Right. But how did that actually map out in your life? So I probably couldn't have
1: done it forever. So, you know, like I said, I can't do anything small, and you know, because you've done that many flips at a time, it is a lot. Yes. So one or two, I mean, you can be at home most of the day. You start doing ten at a time, and it's it's hard. You know, I mean, so if people are better at setting up systems maybe than than I was, like we talked about earlier, but um, you know, it it's it becomes very difficult to do that. And you would probably have to start hiring project managers, which we played around with a little bit, but um there really gets to be a point where it gets pretty hard, but I mean, you know, you could do a smaller scale, but I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't know how to say I'm happy with this. You know, I hear other investors say, "I just want to get 50 rentals and I'm done." My brain like locks up, and I go, "Why? Yeah. You're just getting started. <laughs> like, now that's the very beginning. Out. Yeah, so, you're just
0: starting to get good. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you've <laughs> already made all the mistakes now. But, but it's just a different mindset, and there's nothing wrong with that. But some people just want enough money to enjoy their life, or – where I I can have that and then it's not good enough. I want to build something great and and have something pretty wild. Well,
0: you said something earlier, I'm going to interrupt, where you felt compelled to do it too. And I feel the same way. And I think some people don't feel compelled in the same way. And there's not anything wrong with that. It's just whatever our personality whether we were born that way or made, probably both. I feel a compulsion, obviously, to grow all the time as well. I don't think there's anything wrong with having smaller goals, but know thyself, right? As you yeah. to your point is like, no, that's not me. Well, when I, <laughs> this is not going to work. <laughs> when I was still working
1: in the, the 95 job, as they call it, um, you know, I used to complain about being busy and, and I, and I was always busy. But then I don't know how I where I figured it out or where I realized it, but at one point in my time I wasn't busy and I thought, okay, I'm done complaining about being busy. <laughs> because I realized that, you know, everything that was on my plate I put there. And why did I put it there is because I don't enjoy not being busy. So I need something to do and I need to be accomplishing the next goal and doing something better. So just being a manager at CarQuest isn't good. I need to be the best in the state. You know, just being you know, a flipper doesn't work for me. I need to be better and, and finding somebody. And that's why I love real estate. Cause there's, you're never going to be the best ever. <laughs> so there's always somebody better than me that I can go, man, I got to do that. You know, there's always the next level. Um, so that's, that's what I like about it.
0: I love it as well. Obviously I'm, I'm very competitive individual, but I think of it kind of like I do better with a burden. Or like if you think like I kind of think of myself like an ox, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to just stand out in the field. That's another, like, let's let's pull some shit. Let's go some places. Let's haul some things yeah. somewhere. Like I do way better when I have a a challenge and a, and a goal and something I'm pursuing and. I don't do very well at all if I don't have anything to do to, to your point. And I, I feel, I feel the same way. Not that there's any, if you're not that person, that's not a problem. It's just, you know, that's, you need a plan that works for you is kind of the point we're coming up with. You're an individual. You are the person who has to live with your life and you should try and have a life that matches your personality and your desires and at least your healthy compulsions. Right. <laughs>
1: well, you know, and and I can say if you're relating to that, you know, if you relate to that, I just want to be better, you know, not, not because for any other reason, but that's what makes you happy. You know, just like collecting baseball cards or whatever you do for whatever other people do for fun, yours and mine, I think at least for mine, it happens to be doing better than I did last year or doing a little bit better at something than, than most people. And that's what, what I enjoy as a hobby and I happen to make money from it. So it works good. But, um, Grant Cardone wrote a, wrote a book, uh, be obsessed or be average. Yes. Great book. And that changed kind of that let me feel okay with the way I think, you know, because everywhere else you go, you got people telling you, what are you working so hard for? What are you doing? Or why are you doing that? And everybody gets so
0: tired of those questions, man. It's just, just shut up. (laughs) But
1: that was the first book that said, look, some people think that way and it's okay. Yeah. And, you know, and then he explained kind of the differences of why people attack you for doing good. Like why, you know, because you and I never attack somebody for doing good because we know what it takes to be that. Yes. So you know, it, it makes you understand why they're doing it, why they're cutting you down and, and maybe be understand it and it totally changed my outlook on life and let me say, Okay, well good. I'm gonna be the best I can be
0: and then forget about everybody else. So that was There's room for you in this world. That's what Reed is saying. There that does if you're that person, good. If you're not that person, good. That's mm-hmm. just fucking do it. Just get out there and do it and find a way that works for you. Uh, just know there's people like me and Reed out there in the world too. Don't be, uh, and it's okay. Even when your family tells you you're crazy, it's still okay.
1: (laughs) Believe me, when I, when I quit my job and my wife went down to two days. The same month my first son was born, the world said I was an idiot.
0: <laughs> yes. How many times did you get when you're just going to get a real job? Did you ever get that question? I got that so many times. Like I, I even hate saying it now. I'm still a little uh, fucking traumatized by it. But like you kind of get those questions, right?
1: My uh, my mom said the the biggest one. I shouldn't say. It. She'll probably listen to this, but she um, so she had she asked us she, when we were telling her what the plans were and what we were doing. She says, well, how are you going to, what kind of example are you setting for your son not having a job? And I said, well, exactly the one that I want to show. (laughs) You know, I don't want him to show him that you have to go to get a job. If he wants to, that's fine. That's his business. But I want him to know that there's all kinds of other options. You don't have to do that. You know, and, and I don't think our society really shows people that you're allowed to be an entrepreneur. And that's what built this country. If you're a socialist like you and I, but, yeah. <laughs> or, or if you're a capitalist, capitalist like you and I, like I, but, yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, that's uh, you know, we just we just aren't taught that. We're we're not showed that. So we're said, we're told, and you know, quoting uh, Robert Kiyosaki, you know, you're taught to go to school, work hard, get a good job, and that's what you do. And that's not for everybody.
0: No, I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Especially if you're happy doing it. I bumped into. The- many people who just love their job. They love going to work. I like, I don't think there's a problem. I still think you should be in real estate to hedge your bet mm-hmm. in case your corporate job shit cans you. Right. But if you love that thing, by all means, do that thing. Just cover your downside, you know? And then if you're more like Reed and I, and you got to do your own thing, come up with a plan to start doing, doing your own thing. I think hopefully you get from this podcast and from different people that there are lots of different ways to do it, which is why I keep having different people on. There's some flavor out there for you, whether you're some fucking auto parts store car guy or like me, a donut fryer from a small town out West in a grocery store, right? There's some spot for you or like Todd Chun, a Marine. Like there, there's a spot for everybody in this business. Ron Walla was an auto mechanic, yeah. Before it became a juggernaut and the real estate industry, there's a reason we call him Ron but Probably why we get along so well. Yeah, like <laughs> uh, forget about that. And there, there is something, there is something for you. So now you've been working on raising capital, right? How are you going about? Like, let's not go into too much detail. It's not a syndication podcast, but I'm trying to tell your story. So and a way you feel comfortable telling it from to kind of get us up to date where you are now in your multifamily business. So I think maybe
1: um, it would help to kind of describe what a syndication is because A, like I said, I, I wish I would have known and understood that earlier in my career. But a syndication is basically partnering with a lot of people. So you're taking your resources of your ability and your knowledge in real estate and you're finding a deal... You're working the numbers, you're showing that it works, and you're going to run it, and you're bringing other people in for money. There's a whole lot more things legally involved that need to be done, but essentially that's what you're doing. You're just combining resources, which, you know, as we talked, I've kind of grown into that, you know, borrowing my first money and being nervous. I called you and asked what I should do. I remember that conversation. And, you know, kind of transpiring into having multiple lenders at a time, you know, thinking like, what am I doing? You know, it's kind of just growing into that, but
0: um,
1: where were we going with that? What was the question again? Yeah. Your
0: syndication, like you're growing your, uh, what a syndication is. Yeah. Right. And then kind of where it bring us up to date to, from where you started to where you're at right now.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, it started from, you know a few accidental rentals that I've had. which We kind of joked about that, but you know it's when you're when you're buying them quick, sometimes you don't pay enough attention to that there is a tenant in it, and then you kind of stuck with it. But um, uh, you know, so we've got some rentals, and, and I'm building them, kind of liking the revenue that way, starting to understand the you know the equity pay down and, and all the the mechanics of it, and going, wow, I think I may have missed the ball here. I kind of like this after years of you telling me I need to do rentals. Yes. <laughs> um, but then, you know, then I had a, a few and realized that it's hard to get finance when you have no job. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, we had, um, had some issues there, so I had to sell some and, and back down, but at, I had, uh, I had six total, not all of them were rented, but I owned six that were planned to be rentals, uh, at my one year anniversary of the first one I had. And I remember being kind of depressed, like, okay, Six rentals that is not going to make it. You know, next year I'll have 12. Like maybe if I get better, I'll have 20. Like, you know, and then I started thinking, I started looking at, you know, a lot of the people that I know that are very successful in single family. And, you know, talking in 30 is considered pretty good. But that was in nowhere where I saw myself. And I thought, wow, it's a lot of work for each door to get and to hold, you know, five years, which, I I don't I couldn't go back and do that many anymore. But, you know, of getting to about 10 a year is the average. You know, there's no way that I'll ever get to thousands of doors. So, you know, I'm feeling kind of bummed and depressed. You know, I remember driving thinking like, oh, this is not working. So, you know, and I remember driving past an apartment complex and it was just like a light. And so within probably less than 24 hours, I had hired a mentor coach for – uh, the Michael Blanc coach, if if anybody's curious, but um, you know, I did that and talked to Josh, told him what I was doing, you know, kind of just put the word out, and then made the switch, and you know, quickly stopped buying
0: houses and and started progressing into there. I love how fast you move when you make a decision. Like there's, you could make mistakes moving too fast, but. I definitely err on the side of action over inaction because it's as you're bringing up the great point earlier of way back in the beginning of the podcast is stop thinking about it, start doing it. You could think about it and not do it for years and Mm -hmm. it can slip in and out of your mind and you could just lose whole chunks of your life before you get back to doing it. There's something powerful about having your epiphany as you're driving around realizing you're not going to hit your goal doing it the way you're doing and then, Figuring out what immediate action you could take to go rectify that situation or start pointing it in the direction that you actually want to go, so a lot of power in that, I think.
1: And I, I steal this from from Michael Blanc, but he talks about you know what's when's the day you commit that you say I'm doing this. So you can say like, oh, I want to do apartments, and you can talk about it. Like you see hundreds of people that come to your meetup, and no disrespect to them, but you know. It's probably never going to happen. And it, it,
0: I have a couple of people who have been coming for years and still haven't done anything. I'm glad they come. But yeah, that all that nine, ten years of waiting has not served them at all.
1: But they need to make that
0: decision. Yes. And I don't remember what book I heard it on, but it referred to
1: smoking. and it, And it rings true. A lot of people disagree with me on this. But if you say, I'm quitting smoking, you're not going to. Until you say, I'm not a smoker – and you've committed. So when you when you say I'm quitting, you're saying I'm a smoker, but I'm trying to quit. You're never going to do it. Until you say that's not who I am, that's not what I do, I'm not a smoker, you're never going to make it. Now people I'm sure do, but you have to change who you see yourself as. And I think that's the difference of if you say, I'm, I want to do real estate investing, or I want to do it someday, or someday I want to quit my job, or saying I am a real estate investor and I'm going to quit my job, or I am doing apartments, I am doing this and just making that commitment. So I think that's what's worked for me.
0: I'm a big believer in commitment. Obviously, I like backing myself in the corners. I like writing big checks and then trying to go and achieve it and have something lost. Was your coach, was it just learning or did you get a coach for accountability too? Because like, there's kind of two aspects of the coach. They can help you out, but you also have someone to talk to and they're going to have expectations of you right that you have to meet it's one of the reasons why after i crashed my second company i went work for steve londo and then joe delia right it's Mm -hmm. kind of the same sort of thing um what would be your take on that
1: um so i made i made a small mistake so josh sterling which i've mentioned a few times uh so he was a coach on there which is why the anti-guru me, (laughs) said, well, it must be legit because I know him. I know he's doing amazing things, and I want to be a part of that program. And when I talked to him to sign up, he had kind of told me that it might not be valuable to change the dynamics of our relationship as a coach-student, You know, leave the friendship there and get somebody else. Uh, But by the end, I ended up switching to him because really – that guy will hold you very accountable where my guy was kind of like laid back and he was like, Oh, you're just, you know, cook, cooking along real good. And, you know, kind of let me push myself, which is fine. I, I do fine at that, but I want somebody who's pushing me harder than me like cranking at it. So I did switch to Josh like the last three calls and, and, uh, that was ex- extremely helpful. But so yeah, don't listen to those people. Take a friend if they're going to do it, but but that's also, you know, the thing, I don't like to be a burden on people. So I know I could have asked him questions and he would have helped me. But I don't want to be the guy that's only receiving from a relationship. Yeah. It just doesn't doesn't suit me and it makes me uncomfortable. I need to have something I'm giving you as, in, in return. So I got a lot of value out of the coaching overall. I met my partner at the one of the conferences there. Um, You know, we learned a ton of stuff. Uh, but I will say that if you're doing it, I've learned that the, the, through the process, gurus can be—and I shouldn't call them gurus, but mentors or whatever—can be kind of a crutch. So my wife said to me, I didn't ask her, by the way, when I signed up for this fifteen-plus-thousand-dollar course. So I just kind of did it. She said, "You know, why did you do that? You're smart enough to figure this out. Why? Why do you need somebody to tell you how to do it?" Which is a huge compliment. But thinking back on it, that's resonated with me that that's true. We're all probably smart enough. There's the, all the information's out there. We've talked about it. You can go buy a $40 book or a $20 book and get all the information through the podcast. There's the information's there. If you don't think it is, you're just lazy. And then, um, I think, I think part of it's a little bit lazy of saying, I'll just get all of it in one spot. I'll pay the money. And then they'll get me this deal when I probably would have been as far off doing it solo, but each to their own, but I, I don't look at training as a, kind of a a crutch. And then, you know, another thing I would say is I didn't spend that money until I knew I was buying a deal, irregardless if I had that or not, it was just going to save me a screwing up on that first deal or losing maybe 30,000 on the first deal. And then it paid for itself. So that was kind of the, my mindset, but I see a lot of people that do those programs that again, they spent, I think it's 20 some thousand dollars now and they just, they're just not going to do anything. No, they're not taking those actions. You know, we had the group calls and you would say, you know, you, you can tell who's taking action, who's calling the brokers, who's making offers, who's writing LOIs, who's doing this, who's touring properties and those other guys that are doing nothing. And it's like, look, if I can't get you to call a broker because you're afraid they're going to think you're an idiot, then how are you going to make a $8 million offer on a property? You know, or even smaller. If you're buying a, a you know a ten unit for four hundred fifty thousand, how are you going to do that? If you're afraid to talk to the guy, but it's easy to write that check. It's very easy to write a twenty thousand dollar check if you have it. It's very easy to write that money, but it's that doing that makes the difference.
0: Yeah, your coach is really only committed as you are, right? Mm-hmm. And you're only going to get the value that that you bring to to whatever to whatever call it is. It's not, don't use just to go get a coach and think it's all going to happen. You still have to take massive action and you still have to go out and do things. And they, they can't make you. I have noticed I can be very accountable to things that are in my goals, but I also bump into people all the time that just can't be accountable towards anything. And I don't mm-hmm. think a coach works very well for them because what what is the purpose? To learn the information or to buy the apartment? Mm-hmm. Well kind of one precedes the other, but the ultimate goal is to buy the apartment. So just getting and learning the information and not doing anything is kind of like masturbating, right? They're just, just sitting in your Sorry to keep me, keep it gross, but you're just in your room by yourself, porn hub up, right? Or you can get out and write some offers and do some things, meet some people and actually have sex, you know, <laughs> or buy the apartment, right? So it's not, I think what he's saying is it's not a substitute for action, right? You still got to go out there and do that kind of thing. I've found, um, I have a hard time with coaches, but I can work for people that I admire Mm -hmm. and that works for me. Well, that's
1: definitely the better way to do it. If you can find somebody you can work under underneath that's doing it and you
0: can get paid to do this stuff or even do it for free if you need to, you can get paid to do it too. You literally, now it's not as much as the guy at the top, but imagine getting paid to learn instead of paying to learn like, Mm -hmm. It just flips the whole thing, you know. It's just—I think it's a great way to do it. You do have to humble yourself pretty low, though. I think it's easier, to your point, to just go get a coaching program, right? Not a lot of humility. Bust out the credit card. (laughs) I'm gonna get my learn on.
1: (laughs) Well, but it's not putting yourself out there. So it's that failure thing. The being—you know—are you afraid of failing? You that money, other than your bank account shrinking, costs you nothing. It's—it's easy. But going out there and worrying that people are going to call you a failure or people are going to, you know, make fun of you. I mean, you know, you put yourself out there, people are going to come down on you. It's just that, you know, you've got that whole, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You know, like we talked about, why are you quitting your job? Are you out of your mind? Do you know how expensive kids are? Mm. I do. And that's why I'm doing this. (laughs) (laughs) So actually I have no clue. I don't know how I got here so far. (laughs) Where do kids come from? I I have kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: So I don't know how the wife handles that. Yeah, I didn't even realize. Oh, my God, look how big they are. Yeah, yeah. I think I know I have a good idea how expensive kids are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is a little – I don't want to – I don't know. There's not a better way to say it. It is a little lonely at the top. If you're going to do uncommon things, you're going to be standing in a smaller circle of people, and you're going to have – less reasons to relate to the larger pool of people and more reasons to relate to the smaller pool. And that, that is somewhat, which is why I like networking. It is somewhat isolating, at least from normal society until you build up kind of like your new network of people. I try and keep as many of those people out now, but it took a lot of years to kind of, kind of develop it. And when you're going through the transition, yeah, it's, it could feel pretty lonely. You feel by yourself. You're getting it from your wife, mom, dad, friends, old boss, aunts, uncles, best friends, all well-meaning too, I might add. Like I don't resent these people. I'm not angry at them. You just kind of get tired of hearing the same question and I just don't explain myself anymore. To your point though, I can't remember who said it, but I think it was Grant Cardone. So if people don't Uh, and he might've been stealing from somebody else too. If people don't hate what you're doing, they don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like it doesn't benefit you to be a secret investor or a secret agent because you want to be known and people are going to hate what you're doing no matter what. So just go do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Was there anything I didn't cover on the podcast that you would want to cover? We're at two hours and 15 minutes. I think I've got your story out pretty well, but now's the time where I open it up to anything you want to share, maybe any books, maybe anything you want to sell, anything y- you want to impart to the renegade Detroit audience. This is your time. This is like me saying thank you for taking the time to drive all the way from buttfuck Egypt, come <laughs> up here, do the podcast with me in person. Hike, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, well,
1: I mean, they'll be in the show notes. I'd say check out the podcast, uh, YouTube, go to the, the meetup. Um, you know, the stuff is all free. I, I will never charge for that stuff. We talked about why. So I'd love to see you there. I love answering questions. I love talking about real estate. It's fun. It's what I love to do. So I don't mind people asking me questions. I love people reaching out. You know, if you want to reach out to me on Facebook, shoot me a message because I get a ton of requests that I just deny. But if you shoot me a message, then I'll see it and I'll know you're, you're serious about it, but I got a Facebook group join on there and, and, uh, I love to answer questions.
0: Send me the link before you leave and I'll include it in the, uh, show notes too. Okay. So I can, so I don't have your Facebook in there, but I'll, I'll throw it in there too. So they can, they can find it. So, yeah. And I,
1: I love, uh, encouraging people to ask questions there because then we can answer it and get, you know, have it out there forever. Kind of like the, the Metro Detroit Facebook group has, uh, you know, if you it's want my to look, favorite. If you want to look for a plumber, you don't ask. You just type plumber and <laughs> you get all the requests. So it's kind of what I would like to see happen.
0: Just people asking questions there and talking
1: and debating there.
0: That'd be awesome. Look how extroverted this introvert in front of me has become, right? Yeah. You have a social media group now on Facebook as well. Anything else, sir?
1: I think that's good. I think it's good for now.
0: Man, I think it was a great podcast. That yeah, was great. I think it was awesome. I really appreciate you coming out. Folks. Go to propellerpropertymanagement.com or email him read at propellerpropertymanagement.com or read at multifamilyconnections.com. He has two meetups, single family and multifamily, meetup.com forward slash dirty house buyers or meetup.com forward slash starkey multifamily meetup.